0: coming up in this episode. Most
1: of the time, people are more willing to help you than to take your idea. And to be honest, if you're a startup founder who cares enough about what you're building, like they took the idea and succeeded, it'd be frustrating, but you'd also be really happy because really what your focus should be, should be like solving the problem. And if someone else solves the problem, then great, right? Like that, that's a good thing. Speak to as many people as possible about what you're doing in a completely open and honest conversation and get that feedback and, and be willing to understand the, the negatives fundamentally, like, everyone can tell you how good you are, but actually it's the people who will challenge you who are the most valuable.
0: I have yeah. always um, had a very mixed relationship with activism. I used to yeah. be something of activist when I was younger. At some point, I realised that, you know, it's about talking, you know, talking a good game is one thing, but what am I actually doing about it? And yeah, when you realise that you're protesting against an organisation that really doesn't give a shit about what you have to say and how long you stand out in the rain and do anything, then what you're doing is entirely—it it comes to a point where it feels like you're virtue signalling. When, when you—if yeah. you are or you're not—it feels like a bit of a waste of time. And yeah, so, yeah. I, you know, ultimately what I, what I say to people who are interested in activism is if you've got a skill set you can contribute toward achieving that goal, that to me is a better uh, use of your time and resources than it is to go and stand outside in the pissing rain or getting arrested and, you know, getting a criminal record as individuals like use
1: your voice like use your wallet um you know you don't have to change your life radically you can just support businesses which are doing better you can support organizations which are pushing for change without even you needing to do anything else in your life um so so i think that there's some real power just generally in, in our lifestyles that we have which we generally don't talk about um and and we could use that we'll use that for, for positive change
0: the founders unplugged podcast hosted by greg mccallum raw uncensored conversations with startup founders but um right i've just started recording great okay so, okay. so how are you <laughs> yeah good it's been a hectic yeah, few hectic. weeks uh with tech
1: stars yeah. and everything else but um but doing well really really positive so oh great how was tech still on it but we're um yeah we had like there's like two weeks that they have sort of in the second month of the program where from one till five every day for two weeks, you have like back to back 15 minute calls with mentors slash investors with feedback and intros. It's very, very intense and very very full on, but also incredible that you meet the most incredible people. Um, And then you have to choose three of these, three to five of these people to be your lead mentor for the rest of the program. (laughs) And it's like choosing three or three to five out of like hundred is <laughs> incredibly difficult um but, but yeah, yeah, yeah we we finished that and now we're just moving on with the rest of the program which is still intense but yeah not not quite as a uh, full on. <laughs> mm,
0: yeah it's um it's crazy because i remember we spoke uh initially quite a while ago now a couple of months yeah that, wasn't it and yeah. um man so much seems to have like happened and like obviously you know following you online and stuff like it's crazy like it's been a bit of a whirlwind hasn't it with with the things going on on your end i mean you've launched since we spoke right um and yeah yeah, i mean just tell me what what's been going on like that i know that but what else like there's been so much stuff yeah i mean so we Obviously, we had like a beta
1: period uh, for Canopy for like three months, uh, whereby we weren't really talking about it being live. Like it was just really to get feedback from users that we built into our community already, and then execute on that feedback yeah. super quickly. Um, so that was really positive. And despite not marketing through that period, we all, we still saw growth month on month, and was like really great feedback. And um, and I, and to be honest, despite there being obvious startup you know, growing pains with like, you know, various bugs being found (laughs) and all the rest. Um, I I was surprised at how well it went. And then once we'd sort of executed on a number of that feedback and made some changes and, and sort of iterated on that, then it was time for more of a public launch. But again, we didn't want to like just like public launch and turn on all the marketing taps instantly. So we had some PR coverage, which was fantastic. Um, And actually just because of that, we saw like nearly a 200% increase in growth just from 10 days of October from the whole period of um, before. So really, really positive. Um, And now now we're at that period where it's like, okay, cool. Things seem to be stable with this increase. The site is live. We're getting like random people coming there, giving us feedback. Now's the time to like open the marketing taps and turn everything on. So it's been like quite, intense period of like execution and then sort of implementing this strategy that we've had sort of built for quite a long time now uh and making sure yeah. all of those are in line to yeah to really drive growth so a lot's been going on around that but that's really been the focus for for everyone at the company right now
0: that's really interesting i definitely want to um, ask a few questions about that in a moment but um yeah, yeah. i suppose before we get into it um but good thing to do that this is kind of the only bit of structure that I always say on this show <laughs> is to um ask for you to introduce yourself and a bit about the business and give any, everyone listening and watching um kind of a bit of a sense because obviously we just I always do that. I always just dive straight in. I've got so many questions, but um, but yeah, if you wouldn't mind, the, the mic is yours for a little bit. And while you're doing that, I'll probably share some stuff on the screen, so don't be surprised if I do that. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, so I'm Thomas. I'm the
1: founder and CEO of Canopy.com. Um, I've spent my entire career um, directly onboarding tens of thousands of people into the climate movement with the world's largest environmental organizations, uh, but also... Um, having been a second time founder in the consumer industry as well. So founded the first company in the UK to commercialize the extending consumer product life uh, at the end of events and festivals. Um, when the pandemic came, obviously that entire industry was decimated. <laughs> um, and uh, that was the point where Canopy um, sort of triggered into existence, whereby we'd spoken to you know thousands and thousands of people over our careers um, and had spoken to Um, thousands of businesses that were trying to build these better products. But there was this huge disconnect across that that industry. So Canopy was set up as the home for buying better. The ethical consumer market is super fragmented. If you want to verify claims, learn about swaps, track your impact or buy a product, they're all done on separate platforms, separate user journeys. It's really complicated. Over half the population find it so complicated they don't even bother trying. Um, Canopy is the first and only platform which completely streamlines that ethical consumer journey. So we verify green claims with, with, uh, with certifications and audits. We uh, have ed tech built into the platform for learning, shopping for convenience, but also impact data on purchases. So you can see uh, the carbon emissions, water waste, and plastic waste that you're saving when you make a purchase compared to the mainstream alternative. Uh, and that's how we then gamify the platform and keep people coming back. But the most important thing is that that is all on one platform with one user journey. Uh, so tying convenience into sustainability. Um, alongside being a founder and uh, and sort of ex-environmental organization employee, <laughs> um, I'm also a climate tech advisor on two accelerators, one at Imperial College, Virgin Startup, and one at University of East Anglia.
0: What what what's interesting to me is the journey, right? Like so so take me back to sort of the beginning when when you had this idea. Well, actually, yeah, even even what what sparked the idea? What was that moment? So talk me through that. So obviously, I know you've been involved, like you mentioned, in, in a huge amount of efforts um for when it regard in in regards to climate change and sustainability uh, and so on. So I'm assuming that it might be something bubbling up for a while, or was there a bit of a light bulb moment and then from then on what was the journey to get to where you are you know you talked about a lot of amazing achievements along the way you know working with some you know co-founders that are that are really quite remarkable and all that so yeah just talk me through a bit of that journey if you will
1: yeah absolutely And, and it's really i think it's really great to talk about that story a bit because that sort of like defines everything that we're doing and everything we've built so um there's a bit of context and for sort of like the trigger point of working in climate which was that as a teenager i was actually a, an international swimmer um really randomly <laughs> uh, and that had been my entire life purpose was to go you know, to the olympics and to 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 win a gold medal and all of these things and be sponsored and that would be my life so when I had to quit that due to injury, I felt a massive loss of purpose. I'd spent my entire teenage years being incredibly ambitious, driven, uh, basically living like a founder life, but as a sports person, long hours, uh, a lot of stress. Um, So it was very difficult for me to know really what was going to next. And actually, there's there's a point in that when things sort of started to change and that was i basically took a year out um from school through to university between there to work and i worked as a tailor in levi's um and it it was a super sort of baptism of fire into sort of the fast fashion industry because levi's have all of these great policies that they're working on but still their products are still very very fast fashion-esque in in the way that they're made still um and when I was doing that, I sort of became more and more impassioned about how this was happening and what we needed to do to, to improve that industry. And even just as a mere tailor in like a basement shop, <laughs> um, and, uh, it, it, really sort of started to make me care more about what was going on across that industry. And I would say that at that point that was sort of like the flicker, not so much like a light bulb moment, but definitely a flicker of sort of interest, um, that had been triggered oh. in me, I think. Uh, but then when I went to, um, so I went to university, all my friends were gone, I was sort of like the only one left in the city, I didn't want to just stay where I'd grown up and like never leave, so I, I chose to go to university and study politics, international relations, and met someone who was working at Greenpeace at university. and. That was just a huge enlightenment for me. Like speaking to this person who was working in an organization which had been running for 50 years, changed the world quite literally and the things that they'd managed to get through policy and through business. Um, and it was the same feeling, the same purpose-driven sort of attitude that I felt within me that I had when I was a swimmer. So I actually think that it's all the way back then, before I'd even started working for Greenpeace, that actually I kind of knew that I was gonna be on this journey for sort of the rest of my career, wherever that took me. Um, and that was gonna be my purpose. And that's a much easier purpose to sort of like, have in the sense that it doesn't really go away. Nothing's gonna stop me needing to work on the climate. <laughs> um, so unless we drastically you know, solve all the problems overnight, I'm still gonna to need to work. So it was really, really important for me at that point to really start becoming learned in that area, but also working where I could to improve what I could. So then I got involved with Greenpeace. I, I basically spoke with this person, are there any jobs open and got involved and went and worked as a like foot soldier fundraiser the hardest job because you need to know about all the campaigns but you also need to take all of the shit that comes at you uh when people don't like what you're saying and you need to be able to come back at that with like you know calm and like <laughs> you know informed response and um basically fundraising uh <laughs> first
0: experience yeah and, and it's, um, it's basically sales isn't it like some of the some of the best sales people i've worked with have done that as a as a previous sort of job it's uh it's not very uh uh forgiving let's just say it, and it's it's, it's pretty thankless. It's incredibly difficult. Like,
1: you know, you have like targets of how many people you speak to. And like most of those people are going to like tell you they don't care or they're not interested. And actually what we found through my time working there through speaking with literally, you know, probably tens of thousands of people. Um, and actually I did the math on the number of people I managed to get to sign up to support Greenpeace and to sort of like begin changing their lifestyle. And it was just over 20,000 people. Um, so within sort of like four, four years um and it was really really uh it's quite hard because they're not getting anything out of that other than supporting an organization whose work they're not buying something so giving money basically is charity right um and uh so but, but also the biggest thing that came up through that was that There were three main things that people were struggling with when adopting sustainable lifestyle and that was that they didn't have enough time they didn't have enough knowledge and they couldn't afford it um and these three things came up again and again and again in every aspect of any work that i did with greenpeace or outside of greenpeace related to the climate was that people really wanted to they wanted to to be able to say that they had a sustainable lifestyle but they just couldn't come across those three barriers and because it wasn't as convenient as doing the non-sustainable thing, um, that generally was where they fell back into, which I totally understand. Right at the time, I probably was less understanding, but now I totally get it. And I think that through that journey with Greenpeace, I became very aware of lots of different issues within the climate, but also within the climate movement itself and the way that we, um, the way that we relay information, the way that we talk about things, the way that we ex- what we expect from individuals. Um, I have sort of formed quite strong opinions on why the climate movement had failed to solve the climate crisis because i'd seen it from the inside and what we'd struggled to do and how we struggled to get people we needed um to to get on board with it and actually i left greenpeace not because of greenpeace but because of the work uh the 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 timelines that it took to convert huge businesses you know the biggest businesses in the world and the largest governments in the world how long it took them to implement change was so frustrating to me as someone who had come from a fast paced sports career into sort of wanting to make change and like really bring on people on board. And i would moved my way up through the ranks of Greenpeace into events and outreach. And and suddenly I was just like really frustrated that we would talk with all these people, but I would feel like I'd have to wait years sometimes to be able to tell them that we'd won something. Um, And I I found that quite difficult. Um, So when I left Greenpeace, um, I, as I said, was in their events team. Um, I had been working in, Festivals for quite a while around Greenpeace as well. So I played music in a band. Um, I um, had called the UK with that band whilst working for Greenpeace, and um, was very aware of the the issues of consumer waste at at, uh, at festivals and events. So you know, huge, just like waves of like plastic consumer waste, tents, chairs, bottles, like just like incinerated at the end. In fact, in the UK alone. 250,000 tents alone go into the incinerator every single year Um, and charities and scavengers have managed to collect about one to two percent of leftover waste but the rest they don't have the resource to collect and that's just a huge problem for that for that industry so the first thing that I set up out of Greenpeace was my first company and I just decided that I'd just give it a shot (laughs) Um, and I set up uh, my first company Festovers Um, we were built a model whereby we weren't doing it on our free time. We were paid by festivals and events to come in before the cleaning companies to collect as much of that consumer waste as feasibly possible in the time we were given to make sure that none of it ended up in landfill. And we, the festivals that we worked and piloted with in our first year, we collected over 90% compared to the previous 1% to 2%. Um, and then that waste, instead of it then just being taken and, and discarded, obviously, was would be cleaned, repurposed, sold on. Um, so all into a sort of circular model of that, of that not ending up in, in landfill. And it was really successful. Um, you know, we found out that pilot year had gone well. Obviously, we'd spent a lot of money to test a lot of things. Um, and then we knew that the model that we had sort of settled on would be profitable as soon as we went into year two. Um, and then a global pandemic came. <laughs> and decimated the industry um, decimated my company um, festivals weren't going to sign contracts people weren't going to invest into the industry Um, I didn't really know anything you know I was a first time founder I'd been a year into that journey so I was pretty new to all of it as well anyway so I didn't really know how to navigate a lot of that Um, and learned just like you know again baptism of fire just like learning all of these challenges and what to do and ultimately that that led to the closing of my first company, but the starting of Canopy. Um, and Canopy came from essentially through that entire journey, having come from sport, going into tailoring, speaking to tens of thousands of people about the barriers for them to accept climate within Greenpeace and just outside of that, you know, being at festivals, speaking with businesses, speaking to consumers, speaking to just individual people, and really deeply understanding the barriers for people to move from being a normal consumer to an ethical consumer, and what we needed to do that, and it came back to those three things again: time, knowledge, money. Um, but it also just essentially the top level thing was that if it's not convenient, they're not going to do it. Um, so Canopy was really set up out of that that um, that uh, the, the feeling of people of understanding the problem. And really looking to just solve that problem and being absolutely focused on that problem, and the solution can be whatever really. But canopy is what we settled through through our years of experience with that. Um, and yeah. So so that was sort of the journey to get to canopy at, at, at least. um And obviously, so much has happened since then.
0: And look, ra- random question the, yep. that isn't the most important question right now, that I'm sure is on everyone's mind. But I'm curious. What 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 did you play in the band?
1: Guitar and singing and actually um i've got two co-founders in in canopy and one of those co-founders hugo um it, it was his band that i went uh, so we met at university uh second year of uni his band was playing in like the bar at my campus and i went up to him afterwards and i was like sounds like a love story right but i went up to him afterwards and i was like it, no, it sounds very romantic. <laughs> i was like you're beautiful no um, i was like your band is <laughs> great but you need another guitarist and he was like, we do, we, we've really been looking for another guitarist. Do you know one?" And I was like, I'm a guitarist. <laughs> and uh, we, yeah, I uh, joined his band and did lots of gigs around the UK. I also had another band actually with my sister. It's just me and my sister. Um, and we, we played more like electronic music together, but with both of those, we just like, yeah, toured. And, and actually it was the reason I chose Hugo as my sort of like the first person I went to, to find canopy with was. As much as he's an extremely talented marketer and understands behavior change down probably better than anyone I know, um, he also was someone that I knew all the buttons to press if I want to wind him up, and he knows all the buttons to press if he wants to wind me up, and we also know when to back off. And actually, that was the only thing that really mattered for a co-founder for me was that we knew how to navigate each other's emotional well-being because otherwise it was going to not work, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, so yeah. I went to him because yeah, like I needed a marketer. I needed a brand guy. I needed all the stuff, but actually fundamentally I needed someone who just like gets me and I get them yeah. and then we can just work through the shit together. Um, yeah. and, and then, and then
0: usually, usually important. Yeah. And I'm, I'm assuming in your previous business, um, you, you, you were doing that solo, so you didn't have a, a co-founder at the time, right?
1: Yeah. So it was just me, but, um, obviously Hugo was a friend and we were still in a band together. And so I think that you know he came to like one of the festivals we worked and was around there if i needed advice on anything around sort of marketing or brand um but i was doing it i was doing everything like implementing everything um and then uh but it was great that we got that experience of working together as well when he came to that festival because Mm, as much as we had done all this social stuff together even though being in a band does sometimes feel like a job um actually doing a job and actually working and having that relationship of like You know, founder and someone helping, and and all of this stuff was really valuable because then we totally got it when we started the company together um, to be like like a trial period almost.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And, and, and like you said even being in a band of each other i mean that is work i mean you know you've got to yeah. coordinate a lot of stuff there's, <laughs> there's a hierarchy you have to yeah. be organized or you know sometimes to be organized <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and everything else right being so in a... it's, all, it's all like a, a a test of the relationship because a lot of yeah. a lot of friendships don't last even in bands <laughs> like oh, i know right. I've, I mean, I've been he's... in the industry you know all oh, right cool, cool. what do you
1: play by the way <laughs> or, or do so
0: i used to play uh lead guitar Cool. Uh, that was my thing many many years ago in a different life um and then um you won't believe this but i so i, I long story short because this isn't about me yeah, and yeah. i've said this a few times on the podcast but long story short i my, the first business i founded was a uh, a, a, a events pro, you know event uh, promotion company I, was, yeah. I guess you could say it started as an open mic night they got extraordinarily popular um, cool. uh, because we were sick with all the open mic nights, just being crusty old men, <laughs> sitting in tiny little rooms with like five people playing, and they, you know, they'd only allow their mates to play, and it was yeah, all, you yeah, know, yeah. really shit. And and my mate and I really wanted to play, and my mates and I really wanted to play, but we all played different things, and I actually wanted to beatbox <laughs> with my. Friend who was an MC, Very and of course right. they were like, "No, not, we don't allow any of that sort of stuff in here." So we we're like, "All oh, right, screw you guys, we'll do our own." So we did, and <laughs> I ended up hosting it with my friends. So it was hosted by a beatboxer and an MC, and we would just say, "Anyone could come up; doesn't matter what you do," and we would try and get as many people up as possible. So we got democratized it, and we ended up so packing out this one pub garden. We had people sitting on the roof of the pub to watch That's every so week. Good. There wasn't I enough room, this. and this was a huge pub garden. We would have like three hundred people watching because they just. It was new. It was different. Like they didn't know what they were going to get. And then we would obviously host and get the crowd going and stuff. That's so, so cool. Yeah, I love Yeah. So I've got, you know, a lot of and I got the, the tattoo of the the, oh. the logo of the company on my arm. Um, first ever company I put together my, All uh, business, I suppose not company, I've business. So I've
1: sister, my sister and my band uh, like on me as well here. Uh, it's Life by Matty. Um, my middle name is Life, L uh, E I F, and her middle name is Matilda. Um, so we sort of merged them together, but yeah, no, super cool, man. That's a really interesting backstory. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's very cool. And then, you know, from there we ended up doing, you know, uh, gig nights and, you know, band nights, DJ night, and then it just sort of grew from there for a little bit. And then sure. it just sort of fizzled out as, yeah, yeah. you know, everyone exactly. gets older and, you know, different things take over, but it's definitely a test of friendships. That's for yeah. sure. I mean,
1: touring in like a small van <laughs> with like three other men. sounds very don't but yeah this is going but yeah it was uh it's like the
0: beginning of a movie that wouldn't i know right yeah
1: (laughs) um but it was it was um yeah you know the pressure you know you very quickly like learn to yeah just like learn to know know that person otherwise it's just not going to work um and you have to Yeah, i mean you're living
0: in each other's pockets essentially yeah. aren't you you yeah. know because you know i don't know if you were doing this but i know a lot of bands who taught you know they're sleeping in the van eating oh, in yeah. the van you're doing everything you know like trying to cut costs and you know you're not you're not going to be spending money on accommodation and yeah. stuff and well actually, <laughs>
1: actually i i um i lived in a van for a little while um, because i couldn't afford rent and um i went on a uh, trip with hugo and instead of letting him sleep in the van i made him sleep in a tent <laughs> uh so
0: I, I i always so you had already established the ceo uh relate you know he's gonna hate, he's gonna the relationship him. way way ahead of time.
1: and i remember like one night like him being in the his house was like night and i'm like yep see ya and just like shut the door and it felt absolutely brutal but um yeah yeah but anyway anyway it was completely off topic but yeah it was a, a good time good times
0: good <laughs> for me. One... yeah yeah for you not so I'm sure he looks at the those memories very differently um but yeah yeah, yeah. 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 hypothermia and, and everything else <laughs> well, uh, he's alive, being ravaged by wild animals he's, he's good. yeah
1: <laughs> he agreed to start a company with me so it must have gone quite well
0: <laughs> well yeah he's probably scared of what you might do if he said no that's why poor guy I'm gonna have no, to speak yeah. to him see if yeah, he's yeah. okay yeah uh, we... compare the podcasts <laughs> yeah you yeah, know yeah. he'd just be mouthing
1: yeah
0: but um so yeah i mean the, the, the working with the festivals i mean that, yeah. that makes even more sense that you had this musical yeah. connection and you went to them presumably and you know i've been to festivals before with glastonbury and smaller ones yeah. as well and yeah i've seen the aftermath it's absolutely yeah. insane yeah. um yeah. and they try so much to, to tell you to take things with you and they're sat yeah, there, yeah, they, yeah. they provide these yeah. You know bins for your tents and all that but it just does it doesn't touch it for these larger festivals are you, you thought about wanting to get back into that at any point or is anyone else swooping in and sort of taking the place of what you were doing because that's that's an, an interesting problem to keep solving right yeah
1: yeah 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 so there's a couple of challenges one is just like on what you said like there have been loads of initiatives and they're always targeted at the individual like take your tent home campaign like put your tent here or just like rent a tent or whatever but it's like you're just like asking them to sacrifice convenience at every turn. Like, and as we've known as individuals, we, we've we sort of innovated through the entire history, history of our existence to make things more convenient for ourselves. And, and it's actually one of the big things that I criticize the climate movement on is that if you continually ask people to sacrifice convenience, we're never gonna solve this problem um, or not quick enough anyway. Um, but anyway, so yes, I consistently think about it. I definitely don't have, I, I definitely shouldn't and don't have the time to to go and do it now. There are other companies which are like again on the fringe, like not paid by events to do this, but they go in and scavenge and and, and,
0: and good on them,
1: like and then they repurpose those tents and they, you know, they rent them out and you can like get pre-pitched and blah 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 blah. It's all very good. But the, the challenge is always just gonna be that the pre-pitched stuff is just too expensive for people on top of a of a of a of a festival ticket particularly if you're like 17 and just out of school um and the the second challenge is that after four five days of of heavy festival going let's put it that way i give anyone like i challenge anyone to have the motivation to pack up like all of their stuff like i I literally like
0: really the first thing that's on your mind is it like get home
1: and get in your bed and have a shower and just like not think about the world and just like be in a dark room for days (laughs) and like I get I totally understand that and I also don't think that we should ask people to lose the fun of a festival um because of the waste that is left so so I actually think yeah I, I I think that Festovers which is my previous company um there's a hole for, for someone to do the same thing. I'd love someone to do it. I'm happy to advise someone doing that. But I also, if it hasn't been done by the point where either can appears at a point where I can step back and just let it grow, or we exit, um, then or or it fails, uh, then 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 yes, um, you know, I, I of course will will look at the things that I understand best and see what I can do to solve them. Um, but but again it's a, it's a it's a challenging industry man like festivals as you'll know like they they they're, they're not they're quite structured in the way that they have their contractors they have their model and then they just like contracts just come and come. like it's on a circular basis and and actually to bring in a new model into that is really challenging so to to be able to like when we first set up people were just like never gonna work people were no, you know festivals will never pay you and we proved that wrong but it wasn't easy to get them to to, to prove that wrong, and I, and I think that even yeah. with the bigger festivals, particularly, you need to yeah, it, it's it's a it's sales ultimately, but but also it's 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 a change of sort of like system for them, which is a time like it's just going to take time for them to do that. So I think yes, it's needed, but it's not as simple as just like I'm just going to set up this company and go in and do it. Like the reason that we managed to do it is because we knew the people were running the festival, <laughs> like, you know the festivals that we'd worked at, and and that. That, that's right, been great right. but but you having, know having
0: the, con- the initial contacts helps right rather than going in yeah. blind but it just like the question, it. which is like right yeah but it's the question which is like are you were you doing anything um so particularly groundbreaking or different that the festivals themselves couldn't just do well this is the
1: thing is as well is that festivals could do this like they could set it up so that cleaning companies come in three days later they could clean, like have so that they have a team which then like clears all of that into vans and then takes it off to like other places which buy all that material or whatever the challenge is is then they have to again like it changes the timeline of the festival usually what happens is the festival will uh, get to the end of like sunday night and they'll start packing down straight away like whilst people are sleeping and, and leaving on monday and then if that's the focus of the festival, they don't really have time to bring in a huge new department, which is going to deal with the aftermath of what's left, which is why they get cleaning companies. Cleaning companies, they pay you, they come in, cleaning companies, wipe it all out, and it all goes into landfill. Sometimes gets recycled, but I'm dubious of that. Um, and, and, you know, I so, I so I think that, yes, they could do it, but it, it's actually probably easier for an external company to offer that service to them, because then they don't have to think about it um the the thing that festivals are missing out on though is that it saves them money to do this um you know you can pay my company my old company less money than the cleaning company and then cut the costs of the cleaning company so then you're you're lowering your overall costs but you're also saving all of this waste and then you could have a revenue share agreement so that as that waste is sold on the festival could get some of that and they can make money it's like it could be very profitable for festivals to actually deal with waste and it looks great from a pr perspective because they're dealing with a massive environmental issue but it's a shift it's a it's a behavioral change and that takes time uh so so yes but, but also not right now <laughs> yeah yeah
0: and on that topic of behavioral change so to, to bring it back to the more of the present with canopy yep. like you mentioned a couple of times there about people's behaviors and like yep. we we touched on this before when we initially spoke i'm 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 with you on that one you know the fact that getting people to to uh, be inconvenienced in some ways um, on their daily lives is, you know, is is a, a hard task because I think this is a huge failure from the climate movement in um, in that regard. And expecting everyone to take individual responsibility yeah. to such an extreme, like where you know it, it's like it, it feels like the people saying that don't really fully understand the everyday life of a person in this country or any country yeah. for that matter, where mm-hmm. just survival is more of a priority um than than whether or not they, they they fill up their green bin or you know do x or what you know do you know what i mean and and so i'm i'm, I'm glad to hear you as a ceo of, a, of, a, of a, an organization that's focused on on making uh an impact is, is aware of that because all too often I, I hear the opposite of like you know shifting the blame more on 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 those individuals yeah, so yeah, yeah like speak a bit more to that if, if you wouldn't mind like what what you know what um i mean how is canopy sort of fitting into that yeah in a sense if that you know if, if you understand my, my question. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, <laughs> yeah, no, totally makes sense. And and yeah,
1: no, it's, like it's it's a really important point because, you know, it's challenge I think just to, to caveat everything before I say it all, is that it's really challenging, right? Like I've studied the climate science, I've worked for an environmental organization, and I deeply understand the, the problem that we're faced with, even no matter how intangible it is for for even climate scientists and even for normal people therefore um it's it's huge and and i think the challenge is always that
2: fundamentally
1: I, 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 I if let's take all of the like preamble of like and all of the context of like what people want to do just for a minute let's just take all of that away fundamentally we need like a radical radical and very quick shift um away from the way that society works right now because otherwise we're going to see just impacts which people can't comprehend right now <laughs> um you know the planetary crisis isn't uh, isn't isn't just us like hyping up or like using hyperbole. Like it is a very real thing, which people are gonna feel. Uh, and one thing that I always tap into is that usually it's like right right wing rhetoric to be like, oh, the climate crisis doesn't matter. Like we've got other things to, to focus on, blah, 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 blah. blah And usually then their big focus is like migration and like you know, all of this like bullshit crap. And, and actually, the one thing that i always say is like oh you don't like migrants do you well actually the climate crisis is going to create more immigrants than ever before within the next 10 years uh so if that's all you care about you should be a climate activist <laughs> because like fundamentally your your borders are going to be absolutely swamped with people who are leaving countries where we could have helped but we didn't help and now they're coming to us because we're the place which is less impacted right now so so everyone is impacted by this that's so that's the first caveat It's just like it's hard where i sit because I deeply understand the consumer side the individual behavior side like because i have spoken to so many people and i and i relate to it on an individual level but i also very 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 deeply understand the climate impact side as well um, which is sometimes they, they they conflict sometimes because you know most people can't move radically anyway we don't live in this decorative world where there is none of that context we live in a world where people have wants have needs have challenges uh, and therefore we have to think about what is realistic in order to make impact to make a change in the world that we live in if we ask people to shift the entire economic system it's not going to take the time that like it's not going to happen as quickly as we want it to happen. So we're talking about 100, 200, 500 year change in 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 sort of like economic change, which we don't have time to wait for. So therefore, what's the next step from that? Okay, if we can't take radical action and we can't save that one hit 1. 1.5 degrees, what can we do? Well, then we need to look at the things which are realistic for people to adopt. And this is what Canopy does and what we do as a company is go, Okay, people aren't going to sacrifice convenience and they aren't going to take the time to go and research all of these things, to try and trust all of these claims, to look at the impact, uh, to learn about the swaps they can make, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No one's going to do that. And actually what they want to do is just be able to shop for products which they can trust, have been verified, sustainable. And they know that they can feel good whilst buying the products that they want and need, right? And that can be the initial change that we make. And then once everyone is shopping in that way, with less of an impact but still with convenience, within that model, then you can build in systematic change, because people are already bought in there. if you try and do that before you've given them stepping stones, one's going to no one's going to no jump from the beginning of the alphabet to the end of the alphabet. They're going to go through every little step between that. So we have to give them those steps. So for Canopy, it's fundamentally all about the impact that we have, but not at the sacrifice of convenience. But also we wouldn't be a company if we couldn't have positive impact with the convenience, right? Like we just wouldn't start, like we don't believe in it. So the way we do it is that currently there's lots of different, as I've said before, lots of different places that you have to go to do lots of different things. And it's far too complicated. There's no trust in the industry. Uh, And actually, if we can give the same convenience as something like Amazon, um, but we can do it in a way where people know that what they see has been verified, and that's very well relayed across everything that we say and do. But also, it just like quantifiably see like a data point of like in the best products. Here's why, like just that purchase. Then they're not asked to sacrifice convenience. If anything, they're given an extra incentive to shop on Canopy because it's not asking them to sacrifice anything other than changing the URL they go to. Um, and the difference is is then they're buying better products. The challenge that the ethical consumer industry has is price point. So everyone who works in the ethical market yeah. has at some point said or heard that it's too expensive to shop sustainably. And if you compare an ethical product, I put this in inverted commas because what do these terms mean ultimately, but if you compare an ethical product to a non-ethical product, at purchase point, yes, there is a price uptick on the ethical product for lots of reasons, which most people don't care about they just see the price um but the, it's not fair to judge them at purchase point against each other because of all those reasons yes but also because almost all of the ethical products that you buy are going to last you longer and if they're like cleaning cosmetics or anything like that they're refillable so instead of having to go again and buy that same product at purchase point every single time the ethical one you just buy once and then you buy refills but the mainstream one you have to buy again and again and again And a really good example of this is a reusable water bottle, a reusable water bottle, a really good quality one with good sustainable materials made, you're probably going to have to spend somewhere between like 30 and 45 pounds, which feels like a bigger chunk of money compared to like a single use plastic bottle that you can get from Tesco. But You can refill a reusable water bottle and the life cycle of a reusable water bottle replaces approximately 1,470 single-use plastic bottles. Now, if you compare the price of 1,470 single-use plastic bottles to that one reusable bottle you bought, you've saved yourself over a £1,000 as a consumer over the life cycle of that. And if we can show that to people, it's not just about the sustainability, it's not just about the... It's also the fact that you can save money by buying better products then actually we have a far better chance at converting people into being ethical consumers without them even feeling themselves as ethical consumers because you're tapping into the fundamental things that consumers like, which is convenience, price, and feel good factor. If we can do those things, then it makes it much easier to to, to lessen the impact of the consumer industry. Um, That's my rant. Um, but,
0: no, but that was a good answer. And, but but it, but it's difficult, isn't it? Because that that price point, that part that you mentioned, I think everything else is clear, right? Super clear out of that. But the price point thing is a difficult one because, of, yeah. you know, um, for a lot of people, um, you know, who are on a on a tight budget, which let's face it, yeah. there are a lot more of than ever yeah. right now. You know, spending thirty pounds on a water bottle, part of yeah. a weekly or monthly shop, isn't yeah. tenable. Right, yep. so you get you get that choice. It's like, yeah, I I think a lot of people understand if you buy quality, that it's going to save you money, right? Yep. Like it's it's the difference between going to a clothes store that sells good quality clothes that's going to last and not break sure. versus going to a Primark and buying something that you know sure. is probably going to you know fall apart in a month. But people know that I think, but it is it isn't always up to them. It's up to their budget, and yeah, and yes, they go, sure. I'd love to do that, but. This is a, a a a bigger outlay right now. Yep. if I just can't justify. But yep. um, like I I personally have you know in my life, for example, in my buying behaviors, I, I I've tried in the last sort of five to seven years to make those slightly bigger purchases for things that are going to last me a bit longer. I mean great example my pc that just died today but anyway doesn't always work out but but um but um but you know i'm fortunate enough to be in that position having worked for it and i'm also sensible about it in the sense that i'm not just going to go and buy all of those things in one hit like you know you try and spread it out but it's just again it's just you know who's got the time to sit and think about these things you know i I respect and the fact that i'm in a privileged position to do that um and so it's that's but but i suppose what you're getting at maybe is is that and, and correct me if i'm wrong is that at least if you're eliminating some of the other things that people have to you know take the time or the energy or the money to think about then at least you're giving them you're just presenting them with one thing um as yep. opposed to a myriad of things that would otherwise overwhelm people and so you can then let them decide on the, on the price point side of things right absolutely but but also the point that it doesn't have to be a product which is
1: you know 10 times higher than the, than the alternative right like a reusable water bottle at purchase point is extensively more expensive in that first purchase but cleaning products aren't you know cleaning if you buy a uh, a cleaning product on the canopy website which is which then uses refills rather than just you're having to buy the same bottle again and again actually you're probably only talking about like a couple of pounds more that month like an entire month and and actually that's the conversation that we should have, that it doesn't need to be huge changes. It doesn't need to, and you mentioned it as well, like not everything at once as well. We can talk about smallest possible change that a consumer can make, which is the cleaning product they use, let's say. And then actually the refills after that are cheaper than every other cleaning product you could buy on the market, in the mainstream market. So then it's, yeah, okay, so you've spent like two pounds maybe more that month uh, or maybe it's over three months and you've just put like 30p aside, like or whatever, like 50p aside every month. And, and then you and then you make that one change. And then suddenly your impact as a consumer has, has drastically gone down anyway. Um, but also instead of thinking it from an individual perspective as well, you think about what well, if everyone in my street did that or everyone in the city that I live in did that, just one change, then that's a huge impact. Um, and I think that this is another thing that the climate movement—you know—I'm not here to break climate movement because I'm part of it, and I consist, and I work with these people still. And I think that they're doing a fantastic job, um, just generally in in the climate space. Um, but the other thing that we fail to talk about is that you don't need to be perfect as a as a consumer, as an individual. Um, we can make small changes as individuals, and if everybody makes those small changes, that's enough. Um, but we do have to make a small change at some point. Um, but the difference is is that it shouldn't be a small change of like sacrificing convenience or sacrificing capital or anything like that. It should be a small change that you can justify in that moment um, that makes a shift for your lifetime. Um, and, then, and then that will have a bigger impact. Um, you're right, when it comes to like, I actually find the clothes one um, difficult because the new clothes just at, at, at a base level it's not particularly ethical right now with the materials we use to consistently buy new clothes generally even if they are really good quality clothes um the the difference is as well though is that a, a really good quality piece of clothing is exponentially more expensive than fast fashion like ridiculously more expensive so it's a really hard yeah, one to seem to be inside. a middle
0: middle ground it's, so not that. That. it's just it's so, like ridiculously cheap and
1: yeah. you know way up there so, yeah. so the encouragement with things that you don't need to buy you know new is that always try and buy secondhand always Mm -hmm. rent always do these things where you still get access to them you can still have them you still look great and talk about it all and talk about the brand that you're wearing but you're just not having to buy them up front and and even if it's fast fashion you don't buy up front because then you're not contributing to new waste and and all of that stuff um the, the challenge again though just with like the clothing industry is that actually it's less of a consumer thing that we need to talk about and more of the materials that we use and what happens to those materials at the end of life and that's not really down to the individual that's down to businesses and governments working together um and that i think that will change over time i think that the other thing is i mentioned there was was sort of within certain markets there's the idea of loaning or renting or or swapping and and that's actually also something that people can get involved in um, because it doesn't cost usually as as much as cheaper to do but but also you, you still get that convenience sort of what you want when you want it um but another thing great
0: great people on the podcast you know other founders for businesses doing you know working yeah. in those sort of similar spaces for upcycling for yeah. for, for swapping and, and all that kind of thing so there's some some great innovators out there tackling that yeah. problem as well if you are enjoying this episode and want to support the show please like and subscribe with notifications turned on. 100%
1: and it's really important because we need that side of things. The challenge of course is that, again, that side of the market is great at talking about the fact that everyone should swap secondhand, but also probably wouldn't wanna buy a secondhand deodorant or a secondhand makeup or a
0: secondhand cleaning product. and that depends who the previous owner was. If we had a bit of information, so it might
1: be all right you know all right dude do you do you <laughs> i'm gonna make the statement that i'm not buying someone else's role on deodorant but you can do yeah i think you. that's probably quite fair yeah depends what you're into
0: though i suppose, doesn't I it? suppose that's yeah. right.
1: there's definitely some people um getting a good old step of that <laughs> there's a market for everything that's what i'm saying Yeah. Um, but the point is is that there is always well at the moment there's going to be a demand for new products because you can't replace that like with a second-hand market um, so therefore in that situation you've got to think about okay what is uh, an affordable replacement so looking at refills and everything else but also an ethical replacement are they the good materials all of those things have it been checked but you as a consumer shouldn't have to do any of that like that should be done for you and there should be a place which you can find all those things knowing that that's been checked but also being able to see that impact and also being able to see the money you could save and that's what canopy is be building yeah
0: yeah and it's uh i think it's it makes a lot of sense and i think it's the right approach like like we've touched on already but um i want to i want to ask you about something you you mentioned a bit earlier and at and the risk of getting into potentially contentious waters but i think it's yeah. important to talk about which is you know you spoke about the climate crisis as a whole yeah and how how it's um it is urgent right that it is it is a crisis and that you weren't being hyperbolic i think you said yeah um but i want to ask you what's your opinion on on this sort of the newer rhetoric that I've, I've certainly noticed, uh, and, and presumably you have too, in especially the last year, with a lot of people primarily from the right, but I'm also seeing from the left, talking about how this crisis feels like it's it's been over-egged, it's been um, oversold, um, and it's being sort of dubbed as the climate lie, um, it's being, you know, made to be a bit of a more of a, an alarmist thing. And this, look, I, I'll be completely honest. Where I stand on this is where I stand with most things, right? I'm I'm generally quite centrist on things. The reason being is I completely admit the fact that I'm just a fucking idiot, right? I don't know enough, and I don't feel confident enough quite often on a topic to say definitively one way or the other. I'm just very open to the information, and so hearing this stuff from 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 this new sort of line of rhetoric i was kind of like okay yeah i mean that sounds plausible to be honest and then equally it sounds very plausible you know i'm not a climate scientist so i don't yeah. know right so but, but what's your take on that because presumably you, yeah. you're you're, in, you're beginning to encounter this or have encountered this so, I mean, so what's your take? That, is there some truth to that so
1: no but there's also that isn't a new take. It's just that they've got more platform to talk about it. Um, but what I would just ask very quickly um, before answering is, do you drive? I car? do, yes. Not very well, but I do. That's fine. I Do you, are you a mechanic? No. When your car breaks, do you fix it yourself? Uh, when on we're what talking about I'm like, talking about like a big break, you know, like you need a new, no, 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 no. who do you go to?
0: Oh Well, um, um, my dealership, my mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. And would you say that
1: they're experts in dealing with mechanics on cars? Usually. Yeah. Is that' why you trust them.
0: Because they are trained experts. They have the experience. Yeah. I, I see spend, where you're going with they spend their and I got a response.
1: it. They spend, their <laughs> life, they spend their lives doing it. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and there are, there's your mechanic who you go to, but there are also mechanics globally, right? Like in every country, in every city that have pretty much the same skills and have the same concept on how to fix those things, right? They, you take it to your mechanic, but you could take it to a mechanic in Japan and they probably do the same fix. Um, I would probably expect they might have some other fancy new tech, but essentially they're doing the same thing. Yeah. What I struggle with therefore is that. You're not a climate scientist, as you've stated. Um, you haven't spent your career um, learning about these things. Ninety-nine point eight percent of climate scientists globally agree on the on the gravitas of the situation. It's just data. It's just a fact. Why, therefore, do we go? Hmm, could be plausible that the zero point two percent of scientists who have been disproved and their peer reviews have been debunked let's just clear that as well why is their argument more plausible than the people that we should respect in their academia and expertise in the same way that if i today put out a youtube video telling you that the way that your mechanic was fixing your clutch was incorrect and actually you should do it this way because actually a clutch isn't broken right it's a lie so it's not
2: it's not real
1: that 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 clutch thing that you're feeling—that's not to do with your clutch. Like, don't be ridiculous. That's completely exaggerated by your mechanic. You would not believe me. You would not listen to me, and you go to your mechanic and you say, "No, idiot. This is what the climate movement is dealing with on a daily basis. In that these people who have no academic background in this area, and if they do, they've been debunked, have managed to convince a group of well-meaning people that." the entire climate community is exaggerating the gravitas of this situation, which is entirely yeah. bullshit. Um, look, we have climate models, which are estimates. We have theory, which isn't fact, because in science, you never say fact. When you go to the doctor, you don't question the medicine they give you generally. I mean, obviously, through the pandemic, we saw that as well, which is a whole other argument, but let's not get into that. Um, but the, you know, the, the point is, is that The climate is one of the only topics in history that we've ever seen sort of experts being told that their opinion is, well, no, no, sorry, their facts and their their theory at, at the highest level of academia and the highest level of scientific theory is probably exaggerated. Why? Like, where's this coming from? Because these people know a lot more than me and definitely more than most people on what's going on. So I really struggle with when when I see YouTube videos and when I see, I, yes, I've spoken to people with that argument. I've spoken to them in my entire career for Greenpeace, particularly because we speak with a lot of people with that rhetoric and they are wrong. And it's not a bad to call that out because, you know, generally when we have like debates and arguments to say the other side is wrong is like bad etiquette. You know, you don't generally do that. You listen to the other side, you hear their response. But if they're selling disinformation and they are, factually incorrect you have to call it out for what it is and they are incorrect they are wrong and they're extremely dangerous because what we're seeing in the UK is fuck all compared to what countries around the world are seeing. To give you an example of this a real life example my partner's Malaysian and she has grown up in Malaysia and now she lives in the UK because she came here for university The palm oil industry in Indonesia uses a technique called slash and burn, whereby they go to the rainforest, they cut it down, uh, then they burn it and release all of the carbon dioxide and and all of the stored uh, um, greenhouse gas back into the atmosphere, which has a huge climate impact in itself. But regardless of that, it's causing huge biodiversity damage in the area. That's all bad in itself, right? But in Southeast Asia, there is now an entire season that has been created by human action called haze season, whereby when this happens, it changes the local climate so that you are surrounded by toxic fumes, like haze is what they call it. And it's not actually livable, but because people live there, they just have to deal with it. That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. That is direct climate. response from the from the world from 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 the atmosphere that we live in, dealing with the impacts of humans, and that's just one example of many that I could give you where these things are very real to like billions of people around the world. So when we sit in the UK and we go, yeah, but it's not that bad because like X, Y, and Z, like these people are exaggerating. I haven't seen it. Like that. That's just. It's just fundamentally an untruth uh so, so i take a really hard stance against this just because it's it's actually very dangerous because people like yourself who you say centrist not sitting on either side of the political spectrum whatever you can make that decision but the point is is that you are at risk of being misled by people who are lying to you for political
0: gain well, well just to, just to be clear just to be clear yeah. i'm yeah. i'm I'm with you on the, the the mechanic um side of things right i generally will usually side with experts in the world, yeah. like people who yeah. th- which is again part of the reason why I don't claim to be an authority on on many things of anything, yeah. uh, because I am not an expert. I'm not, you know, I'm not a climate scientist, yeah, or, yeah, you know, yeah, a yeah. Scientist, yeah. scientist of any kind. So I, I hold a lot of stock in people who have uh studied and trained and worked yeah. in Um, certain areas, you know, across the board, for for anything, especially on the climate issue. So while I say I'm a centrist on that to a degree, I'm centrist on the politics of it, I think is what I mean more than anything else. When it comes to science, then I'm going to believe those who have the 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 background and the yeah. the the IQ and and everything yeah. that goes with it. I mean, I'm I'm generally going to believe the scientific consensus, but that's not to say there isn't um, flaws within the scientific community. There are a ton. Oh, well, of course. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Don't uh, get me wrong. yeah, and and that's <laughs> also not to say that I don't think, as an individual, we, you know, I'm not allowed to question the information I'm given to a degree, but not in a way that I, you know, that 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 in any way um, sort of acts as if. Um, or well, to presume that I know any better it's yeah. just simply like, can you, can you give me the the, yeah. the additional information if I have the time or the desire to, to learn yeah. a bit more about yeah. it? Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We've got to hold people to account, even those who know more than us about certain things. So just to clarify on that, but uh, yeah. but it is also worth saying that there is a slight flaw with the the, the mechanic argument, which is a lot of people get screwed over by mechanics so just just, i'm just saying (laughs) Um, right there are agendas and you know and 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 you know even looking at um uh you know the scientific community on a global scale there are certain certain countries that 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 will produce uh scientific results based on pressures from from political parties um not always western but it you know it does you can understand the Skepticism I, I understand skepticism of the of the, the daily you know person again going about their life focusing on on survival. you understand the skepticism when you see a certain level of corruption either in you know current Western society or around the world and it, and it opens up it, it just makes it like a well you know the 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 the, the cards are you know it, everything's off the table at that point yeah. for people. And so that's when you get conspiracy theories and misinformation like, rampant because everyone's ready to believe it. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's the problem with misinformation. Everyone's ready yeah. to, to have a contrarian view. And that's that's a whole yeah thing. Yeah. Itself, yeah. I,
1: right? yeah. I have actually two, two things to say on that, which is that you are absolutely right. So through the history of scientific to uh to society sort of studies, um, and through the history of science and the relationship between society, there's been sort of like three of phases of that and one was originally science was seen as like this thing which the 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 lay person the, the 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 average person wouldn't understand so therefore science was dictated upon people and people would respect that to the highest order um and that was just the way the world worked but then as more and more sort of investigative journalism came out and more sort of like understanding of how science is funded and all of these things began to uh began to sort of like rear their heads we had a understandable and absolutely needed question um of why we should just take things at face value and never question things because you absolutely should always question everything um and that led to a a sort of like change of shift where science and scientists and scientific community realized that they needed to engage with society because they needed people to understand like where they were coming from when it was actually truthful. Like they didn't need, they didn't want people to then go, Oh yeah, but that time you lied. So what about this time? Are you lying again? Like that was really important that they didn't have that. So then they again started discussing with society, but it was still very linear. It was like, we will ask them their opinion and then that's fine we've asked them their opinion and now we can carry on and then we entered this sort of like new age of sort of like scientific um and science and technology studies whereby it was all about sort of co-creation co-productionist um which is where we engaged civilians into the scientific world in order to co-create scientific theory based on both Academia and lay knowledge, and the, one of the biggest triggers for that was actually after the Chernobyl crisis. So Chernobyl happened. There was acid rain that came over from from the east. Um, farmers in the Lake District said that their land and their their livestock had been contaminated, and scientists said no originally that's not possible it can't happen the theory isn't there um, there's no way that it would still be contaminating after it reached that point and eventually the farmers were like well here's the proof like what do you want from us and we're like oh okay they're actually That what they're saying is true. So therefore, okay, let's put a theory in place, and we say, well, based on the soil in the UK, it should stop being contaminated within this period of time. So therefore, we'll ban livestock sales for that period of time, and then we'll open it back up again. And farmers said, well, actually, no. But in the Lake District, the soil is different. We've been farming this land for generations, and it doesn't work quite like that. So the way that it works is X, Y, and Z. And scientists said, no. Like central, central government scientists said, no. Like you know, we've got the science here. It is. Um, And and they were wrong, again, and then eventually it came to the point where the farmers and the scientists collaborated to work out what was the best way in order to make sure that the livestock industry could continue without the contamination impacting and eventually, obviously, reaching humans, Um, and that was the only time that 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 sort of like triggered the need, for lay knowledge to come into the scientific community. Now, the reason I give you all of this is because that hasn't stopped. Scientific communities around the world are still co-producing science with people, but also still there are groups which are purely funded and just do their science and then release it and peer re- like and, and say it peer reviewed, but it's peer reviewed by the it, it same people. It depends on the
0: science, presumably, right? You know, right. And what it what is that they're, they're researching into. You know? But
1: the point I'm getting to, uh, Greg, is that with climate science and with the, the the climate narrative, if that's what you want to call it, is that it's not just coming from one scientific community. It's coming from 99.8% of scientists globally who are funded by various different organisations, various different governments, various different incentives, various different humans, and they all come to the same theory. Anthropogenic climate change is real. And the level and the gravitas of that situation is dire and it's unequivocally caused by humans, and we should not and cannot challenge that at the threat of our own existence. That is the stance because that is the theory. That is what's been proved again and again regardless of who's funded it. So whether your mechanic is trying to trick, you, I can guarantee you that not every single mechanic in the world is trying to trick you. And that's the same with the scientists is, yeah, there might be one group which is funded by some like whack-job fucking guy who just wants to push a narrative. But, oh, look at that. It also happens to be the same narrative that every single group which isn't in line with that person is also saying and therefore that's why peer review studies exist now because that didn't exist previously. It previously was that science could be determined, people would come through. And a good example of this in the healthcare industry is the whole sort of like MRR, MMR and autism studies that were done by Andrew Wakefield. He released them he said it was true. It caused a huge amount of disruption in the in the medical industry, and then everything was peer reviewed, and he was disproved, and he was barred from being a doctor because of it. That's exactly what's happening in the climate industry. It's science, climate scientists that are coming out, and I, and I note that you say that there's a there's like um, funding for these for this agenda, and, and blah 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 blah, but. I'm sure you're also aware that that's the same for the people who are saying the other side. In fact, it's been proven oh, yeah. that, the, that the scientists that are coming out against the climate narrative are funded by the oil industry, by the automotive industry, by the
0: pharmaceutical industry. Well, that, that was going to be, yeah, it's funny you said that because that was going to be my next question. Like, what do you think the motivation is behind that? I mean, and I think the obvious one is, okay, industry. But, but beyond yeah. that, like, is there, a, you know, is there any more to it? Is there any more substance to the motivation behind the narrative mm-hmm. there? um and why money, people
2: are so
0: willing time. to believe it literally money
1: and time so the point the reason i say that is that for for oil companies um it, it, car industries changed a little bit because originally the car industry was like super um sort of anti-climate like and would be pushing sort of a narrative of like this is extreme like we don't need to move towards but now they've like actually seen that like they can't like argue with it and actually there's a market for them, right? So their shift purely came because they went, oh actually we can make a market out of this new industry. Um so let's actually go in and support it. So either way, they're both they're biased by their greed and biased by their money. Oil companies are inter- interesting because for oil companies, they are starting to fund like renewables and a shift away from oil and gas, which shows that they know, shows that they know they need to. But the point is they can't do it quick enough to justify the climate narrative. So therefore, what they do is they push out and funds climate science, which is not climate science, it is just picking data and cherry picking to so that they want to choose to back up their agenda. And then what they do is that they can go, so therefore we've actually got more time to do this, we still need to do it. They're not going to argue that. They'll go, we still need to do it. It's not that they're wrong. It's just that they're extreme. Like we've actually got a hundred years, not 50 years. And, and that gives them time as an industry to shift. But luckily for them, they're usually based in countries which aren't going to be impacted by the climate crisis right now. So they can afford to go, well, it's bad, but like, let's not worry about what's going to happen over the next hundred years, but let's just make sure that we have time to transition in time frame that we want while still being extremely rich, while still making profit, whilst people are paying more on their bills than ever, like these are the companies which are, you know, I feel like I'm just ranting a little bit, but the point is, is that they they essentially it's not that they deny what's happening it's that they will try and lead people to believe that it's not as extreme as the climate community says it is right. because that just gives them time it gives them time to to make money and to transition but we don't have time <laughs> so it's like or at least at least the majority of the world doesn't have time right so, so this is the challenge it's just that most of this right-wing rhetoric um and I am yet to have met a left-wing uh, sort of scientist that agrees with that right-wing rhetoric, if i honest, but maybe there are. Um, but they generally are, are pushing, got to the point where it used to be to push against the narrative entirely and say that it's false. That has changed over the last 30 years to now be like, oh, it's not false. It's just not extreme. So we can wait, we can take time. And I can guarantee in 10 years time, they're gonna be like, oh, no, no, it's extreme. We need to change like super rapidly. Let's blame someone. Let's blame other people. I mean, you see that already, right? right. right. Let's blame China. Let's blame. Let's blame us. Let's blame Saudi Arabia because they're the oil company. They're on selling oil to us, so it's their fault, right? Like, actually, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, we need to take responsibility. Well, and that's an easy
0: thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you hear yeah, a lot yeah, about 100%. that, of like. Um... You know when America is put on the spot for its its um, effects on climate, then they they always point to India and China. And you know when the UK is pointed out, we always do the same. It's like it's you know that's I mean that's just a yeah. a completely yeah. uh, like a useless way of arguing the point. It's like you know it's like uh, it's like shouting at a kid and and, and telling them off for. For, for doing something naughty and then pointing up again, well, they did it, it's like, well, that's not yeah, really exactly. the point of what we're talking yeah. about right now. Exactly, we're talking exactly. about your responsibility yeah. and it's, yeah, it's yeah. a very easy thing to do to shift the blame. Um, but at the end yeah. of the day, it's everyone's responsibility to to take part Absolutely. And, and be proactive. So, so do you feel like the UK is doing enough? Um, I mean, let's, let's focus on the UK It's where we, where we live, right? So do you feel like yeah. the UK is doing enough and doing its part um, in terms of its policies and, and, and where it's uh, allocating its funding to tackle this? issue or does it need to do more the whole world needs to do more well. so that's not a uk thing
1: i'm not going to sit here and say that the uk is bad in what it's doing because it's it's a global issue Um, but the uk had some policies which it implemented which were semi-positive <laughs> put it that way um and within a semi-positive timeline i, I note that there's an independent advisory body to the to the government called the Climate Change Committee, um, and they're set up so that they can give and relay sort of data and, uh, and audit on policy and on the impacts of that policy to government to tell them when they're online with the legal commitment that you've made as a, as a country um, for your net zero targets. And to note that they have been... So before all the changes that recently came, they released a report Said that we were nowhere near on track to that legal commitment from with these semi-positive policies. So it, it just showed that, like, yes, we've got some good stuff going on, but like even if we just remove like the niche for a minute, like as an as an overall, we're really not doing enough just from a legal basis as well. Um, then Rishi Sunak decided to backtrack on a load of those policies or delay a load of those policies. And if I'm honest with you. Greg, like, it was the most shocking, like, uh, announcement to to our, commu- like, the climate science community, because it was just like, we, you set up, you, you know, governments have set up us, advise these advisory boards, and various sort of climate science believe feeds into these, so that then we can relay that information, relay that data, so that policy can be determined for the better of society, and you just blatantly ignored it, uh, and that has really, really just, like, shocked the UK's targets sort of in the foot for now I don't think that that's the end of it I think that the UK could come back from that I think that they've seen I'm part of a group chat for COP28 organization with a whole bunch of UK-based businesses and European-based leaders and, and, and scientists and when that announcement came out from Rishi Sunak there was a letter that went around, which had been signed by hundreds of the world's largest companies and the world's most influential, um, sort of politicians saying that like, this is not, you have not got a mandate to do this from anyone, um, no, not in the business world. So don't try and claim that it's a business thing because we're stood here as business people and not startups. So, you know, my company meant nothing on that list, but I'm talking about like huge companies, which, you you know, that letter is probably somewhere circulating online, but, but us. Fundamentally, taking a stance and saying your agenda, your ideological gen- agenda, as like as a as a, either a prime minister or as a party, like whether you want to differentiate those two, that's up to the, the person listening, but that is n- not backed by business and that or the majority of business and that is not backed by the people. Um, and what's really interesting within that is that the whole rhetoric around these changes was that, oh, it's for pe- it's for society. Like we're going to try and bring energy bills down by getting 100 new oil and gas licenses in the North Sea. Um, and we're going to reduce our climate targets for, from 2030 to 2035 or in some cases to 2050. Uh, and it's like this is all to do with the fact that it's the cost of living crisis but most of that oil and gas that you're drilling in the north sea is being exported and then we have to buy it back at a more expensive amount meaning actually it's going to rise the cost of energy bills increase the cost of energy bills not lower them so fundamentally from a data perspective it's just incorrect so whether we're talking about the climate or whether we're talking about the cost of living crisis these policies did nothing for nobody other than the ideal uh, sort of lobbying from oil and gas companies which we know put money behind uh sort of the current politicians in government so yes yeah UK... and, that, and,
0: that's a, and that's a huge problem isn't it and that's that's yeah. the the thing i think that's most disheartening to most people around this topic is that because of there's such a um uh, uh a what's the word symbiotic relationship let's say between politics and these industries that there's yeah. a sense of like uh that, that, that nothing will really ever yep. be able to effectively change without either a pretty serious um, shake-up of the way that the country is fundamentally structured or yep. until it's too late, right? I mean, human beings are pretty good at reacting to things once they go wrong, yes. um, but not so good at reacting to them preemptively. Because again, yep. like to, to your point about visualization, we're not very good at that. Um, yep. uh, you exactly. know, The scientific community is, that's their job. Um, yeah. um And that's part of of the thought process, bit of being scientifically minded. But but yeah. generally speaking, especially if you're only working on a four year basis, right? Which which probably well, this is a challenge, right? Right. So so what would you say is the solution there? Because of you know, look, for, for I, I'm interested in in solving problems, right? That's yeah. and and I think you are too. I mean, that's why you're a founder. Yeah. We're we're in yeah. this uh, business where I mean I don't know any founder that doesn't hold the same sort of philosophy as me, which as a founder too, which is. You know, don't come to me with problems. come to me with solutions. So what would you say are the solution? or yeah, the solutions or the solution to that very fundamental I mean, corruption, I guess you could call it, but it is within law, so it's not technically corruption. yeah, yeah, I, I mean, i I can't give you a
1: silver bullet. I, I think that this is a huge topic, which, you know,
0: Many, well, maybe silver bullets are part of the answer. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, I'm not going to condone that on a video, um,
0: but um, you know, that's the great thing about being a podcast host. I, I can say what well, like I like, I'll
1: say Maybe I'll say it. Full disclaimer that'll not my voice, okay.
0: Um, <laughs> I'll put uh, that in a quote when I share the yeah, clip, yeah. so it's almost fantastic. <laughs> to
1: I am of course so... joking. Do anyone listen? Know, Calm know, down. Know. You know, <laughs> okay. Um no, so I think um I, I think fundamentally so I I I have a little bit of a sort of anecdotal part here, which is that I sat on a or hosted a panel at the London Climate Technology Show last month, I think it was. And I sat on a panel with uh, someone from the Cambridge Institute for sustainable leadership, someone from EY consultancy, um, from, from a hydrogen truck company, um, and someone from a renewable energy sort of like community based company. And this was just after the announcement for Rishi, um, and, and the conservatives and everyone in this room was, was, you know, against what that policy had now changed to, but, the mental thing that came up in the conversations of like okay we can sit here and state the government all we want but this is what they're doing what do we do now and and the thing that came up again and again and again was collaboration without the reliance on government basically if we can't rely on government to bring in reasonable and and effective policy and regulation then we as a business community and as citizens have to be that ourselves you know it's why you have citizens law it's why you have citizen assemblies it's why you have business forums it's why you have business advisory boards is that you can effectively do everything that the government should be doing without them needing to be there now i'm not a free market capitalist i don't believe in non-regulation i think that fundamentally, if we're going to change Um, solve the climate crisis, but also solve lots of other societal issues. Um, I think we need regulation and we need policy and we need government and we need incentives and we need investment from government. We need all of those things. We need them to work with business. We need them to work with systems. But whilst we wait, there's no point in us waiting and just shouting and throwing rocks at at 10 Downing Street. (laughs) Um, We should complain and we should protest, but we should also be proactive and start building. Um, So I think that The the sort of glimmer of hope within all of this was that coming out of that conference and then any other conference that I've been speaking at recently as well is that there's a lot happening just like away from government where people are really driving forward change without having to wait. Um, It's challenging and actually the biggest challenge with that that if the government isn't incentivizing companies then it makes it more expensive for us to do these things. Uh, eyes on sort of the wealthy of the world the angel investors the VCs and the institutional money to basically be the government money and to support longer term visions and to change their theses and all of these things which is another shift which I you know will come in time but I think we're already starting to see that we're starting to see companies which we are VC yeah. yeah we saw VCs which were set up as like impact VCs just generically with the same thesis who are now like hard climate tech vcs with like huge long waits until they get their returns like they're not there for like six seven year return they're there for like a 15 20 25 year return because they understand the money that needs to go into these companies and they understand the return uh, that they will get will be better if they let it mature Um, so i think we're seeing that shift that keeps gives me a lot of hope um i think that Generally, in the startup world as well, we're seeing like a lot of great initiatives come out which are going to help solve this problem, not just for like from a climate perspective, but from an individual perspective. you know, we talk about canopy being about tying convenience with sustainable shopping because for us, yes, impact, as I say, is like the foundation of everything we do, but our main focus is what the individuals want, what do people want. And people want convenience. people want easier price points. people want to not have to do loads of research. Well, if we can give them all of that, but it also is positive impact. Then we're going to make a shift without people even really needing to change anything, and that is what I'm seeing a lot in the spaces—not just for consumers, but for businesses as well. Startups who are creating—you know, I advise a startup called Pulpatronics and they designed a RFID tag, which if you don't know what RFID tag is basically for scanning security for clothing and consumer products at retail stores. So when you walk out and it beeps, like usually from an RFID tag, or if you're scanning it into a a till or whatever, it's usually an RFID tag and they have like metal chips in them they're super, super bad for the planet (laughs) Uh, and all of these things. They've designed a new one, which is exponentially less impact, but also cheaper. Uh, So what's really interesting is they've innovated this great climate solution But they understand that businesses, at the end of the day, it's all about their bottom line, it's about the money. And they innovated a climate solution whilst making it convenient and accessible for businesses to adopt. That's the sort of thing that excites me because it's not pushing back against industry. It's working with what industry wants and with what consumers want to then give them solutions which are better for the planet. So that's how I think we solve that. Um, I would love, of course, to also get on board with that, but I'm not gonna hold my breath. (laughs)
0: And you know what? I 100% agree with everything you said there. I have the same opinion in regards to the way that we can move the needle here, and I think that the answer lies in enterprise. Um, and and I actually spoke on this very recently, and in fact, I think I've got a post coming out tomorrow where I put a clip from the episode of this that's coming out. I mean, by the time this airs, it'll be it'll be you know maybe a month or two uh, ago. Right. But um, but but an episode of, of, of speaking with a founder who's in a similar space to yours, doing something similar in terms of a platform, but for the high street. So to be able to make the right choices based on data done for you on the places you visit locally which is another thing right another element of it and i do so i do see and i've got a great vantage point speaking to as many founders as i do on a daily and weekly basis that when i encounter individuals like you innovating in these different spaces you can start seeing the bigger picture and actually once all of these 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 smaller innovations are implemented and, and grow and, and blow up in their in their respective markets, that you, you end up with a holistic uh, uh approach to attacking the problem um yeah. and i think that's that is the way forward because that will put pressure on the government eventually you know when you have yeah. organizations that say like a clothes shop that that suddenly how are working with all these different startups to solve all these different problems and then they collectively yeah. go to the governments and say hey we have actually managed to not only lower our carbon emissions yes. and this and lower our waste but we're making more money we're, our yeah. employees are happier, and da da da. Exactly. It's like now, you need to support us and listen to us. Yeah. They can't say no because suddenly exactly. that is more powerful, and there's more probably economic opportunity for the government there as well as the yeah. sort of social capital that they give than yeah. the than the yeah. the oil companies of the world can now offer. That it needs to be yeah. the, the balance needs to shift, yeah. you know? and I think yeah. it will. Yeah. It's just going to take a lot of time, and it takes more innovative individuals like you. And just one final like thought I guess to um, on this as well as you mentioned yeah. activism there and like you know the right to protest and so on I have yeah. always um, had a very mixed relationship with activism I used to yeah. be something of activist when I was younger cool. going to protests and all that and I, I become slightly disillusioned with it because at some point I realized that you know it's about talking you know talking a good game is one thing what am I actually doing about it and yeah, when you realize that you're protesting against an organization that really doesn't give a shit about what you have to say and how long you stand out in the rain and do anything then what you're doing is entirely it, it comes to a point where it feels like you're virtue signaling when when you yeah. if you are or you're not it feels like a bit of a waste of time and yeah, so yeah. I, you know ultimately what i what i say to people who are interested in activism is if you've got a skill set you can contribute towards achieving that goal that to me is a better uh use of your time and resources than it is to go and stand outside in the pissing rain or getting arrested and you know getting a criminal record Um, uh, in my view and 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 that's not to say there isn't a place for for for, for activism there are absolutely years and there are a lot of times where that's made effective change but i think for issues like this um you know put put that energy to use i feel right put that energy use go and make the change that you want to see asking others to do it for you feels um well it feels like slightly hypocrit- uh, hypocritical in my view sometimes not always sometimes yeah yeah I
1: I, I, I tend to sort of like yeah mostly agree I, th- I think that the the way that activism can work effectively is when hundreds of thousands of people turn up and show their support for something you know it, it, it draws attention to an issue Right. it draws attention but it but it also shows like physically like a pressure without it being like right, right you know an email or like it's like there are like you know I was on a march recently and there was like over hundred and fifty thousand people there outside Downing Street. There's no way that you can ignore it, right? Whereas right, but, people. But, but my, point is, email, my point
0: is my point is you're you're taking part in that but you are hmm. also doing what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, so right. what I was going to say but when, when, yeah. when it's a career as, as an activist, it's like it comes a point yeah. where it's like, I think that that presence is important. I absolutely yeah. do, and I agree. You know, it makes it known that it's an issue and, and it attracts media attention and all that, but it's when it's when people are, are, are for some reason, um, you know, upset that that isn't doing the job. It's like, well, you need to be doing... If yeah. you're really serious about this, do more.
1: Found a no, company. I agree. I, and you're doing course. so much. Yeah.
0: Like, that's... It's one element yeah. of the things that you're doing. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. What I was going to say was that, like, it doesn't, like, it shouldn't, and usually isn't as well. Just like one thing, though, right? Like, protest doesn't go alone. Right, it shouldn't right. be alone. Like, generally, what's the, what the challenge has been is that, that, for example, with Greenpeace, Greenpeace was sort of thrown into the same sort of bag as the likes of Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion. But Greenpeace, the activism that they do is usually targeted at businesses and governments, and it only happens after. a uh, a company has refused to work with Greenpeace because 98% of the work that Greenpeace does is in a boardroom with a roadmap looking at financial charts trying to work out a good transition for that company to make which is both impactful and efficient Um, but people don't see that so what they see is the activism stuff and they go oh you all you guys do is activism what a waste of time but that's not true they're not they, they spend most of their time working on actually more serious things than any of us do um, so so I think that you're right, but I also think it would be incorrect to assume that all activists, or not all activists, so even some activists don't do anything else. They're not consistently doing actions. They're not there every single day. They are out there in certain periods of time, and that might, even if they are out there every single day, they're out there for like a couple of hours in the day, and then they're doing other things, usually working. Or if they're kids, they're usually at school, right? And so I think that, it would be wrong to assume that just because they are very vocal about activism and because their activist stuff might not be stuff that we want to do um, or stuff that we feel comfortable doing doesn't mean that they're not doing other things. Like I know plenty of people who work or, or have, have worked or been involved with Extinction Rebellion or Just Stop Oil who are phenomenally impressive in the work that they do uh, as well. A, a really good example of that is there's a guy who who... Is at every single Extinction Rebellion march, every single Extinction Rebellion protest. He's also a climate scientist in of the highest regard in his industry, and, and I think that you know we can't assume that that the people on the streets aren't doing other stuff. I, and I actually think that the reason they're on the streets is usually through desperation of, like, the work that they've been doing isn't being heard or hasn't made a big enough impact. Yeah,
0: I feel like they're sort of banging um, their head up against the wall a little bit. Yeah, which is challenging. I'm not saying that that is the case, but, uh, but, no, but, no. but we are seeing. and But this nicely ties into something else I wanted to ask you, and you almost touched on yeah. it a bit there as well, which is, you know, there is th- that we have to admit that, you know, um, uh, there is a movement on the left, which is taking things slightly too far. That there is a a new wave of uh of activism and a new wave of leftism if you want to call it which does seem to be focused more on the social capital that it gains um them as opposed to the real issues in my opinion and i know i've spoken to these people right mm-hmm. um and they are unfortunately uh rep- misrepresenting in my view some very very serious issues um issues that i fully support and and believe in and 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 i think they're they're doing a huge disservice to those um those 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 yeah those those issues and and, the, the, and and even um undercutting some of the validity and probably you know uh helping uh with with the spreading of a lot of this misinformation we talked about and and you know uh, uh contributing to the way people are res- being more receptive to the other side yeah. of the information to some degree yeah. so you know uh, and a great example of that for 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 me and i don't know what your opinion on this but for me it's just a boil right mm. I, I i i put them in that camp. Um, I, and that's not to say that, that I think everyone in um, in that organisation is like that. I think there are some very well educated, like you just pointed out, some very well educated, very well meaning individuals there who have the right yeah. um, the right ideas to a degree. But unfortunately, that that movement is g- garnering a lot of support from a lot of individuals who yeah. who, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, don't really care about the issue, aren't doing anything themselves to solve the issue. Um They just—they're virtue signaling, basically. And um I would say that I—I I, I don't support the way that they go about um, about their protests, uh, mm. largely. Mm. What is your stance on that? And do you have do you have much of an insight into that? Because you must, being the space you're in, you must encounter individuals like that, right? They do exist. No, I, no, I, no. I, this isn't no. something that I've just imagined, right? No, no, no. <laughs>
1: um yeah they do exist i think it's it's a very small minority they're loud but they're small um i think that
0: and that's the problem they're loud so they look like the the majority that's the
1: problem but but also you know you can say that about just like any sort of like any movement really there's always like a fringe group which is louder than the rest and they get the most media attention but that doesn't mean that the whole movement is is doing that um i think that there's two things like one thing is, is it's undeniable that they've brought an attention to the to the movement. Um, that hasn't always been positive attention, but hey, we're talking about it. So, um, I think that through you know last fifty years of climate movements and activism, there's only been relative media coverage of of all of that, and and now it is like full frontal, you know, just like all, all always. And and most of the media rhetoric is very negative around their actions, but. Again, it gets people talking about why they're doing what they're doing. I, in terms of the actions they take, I, I tend to agree. Like I think that it disenfranchises more than it engages, which is a problem. And the reason for that though, is it's kind of less the, the action in itself and more that they don't have like a follow on, like a, here's how we solve it. It's like, everything should be bad for driving a car, the end. And actually, that's that's really unproductive.
0: It's just guilt tripping and victimisation. Yeah. It's not.
1: Well, it doesn't work. I mean, even in our own sector, you know the general rhetoric in the ethical consumer market is being like, oh, if you buy from Amazon, you're bad. And it's like, well, actually, no, like, yes, of course, Amazon's bad. And we all know that, but also it's super convenient. And like, they have everything I need. So I get it. Um, You know, so it's not about saying, oh, you're bad for doing this. It's saying, this is a bad thing, but here's a solution. You make the choice as an individual, what you want to do. Um, And then, as I say, without all of the sacrifice that usually comes with that, if we can get rid of that sacrifice, then great. Um, I think that, my challenge is is that like, generally, like there doesn't seem to be like a unified target on these things. Like, my opinion initially when Just Stop Oil started was, great, you're targeting the automobile industry.
0: It's probably better
1: that you target the manufacturers and the actual automobile industry rather than people who are just driving cars. Um, but that doesn't even seem to be the rhetoric anymore. The rhetoric just seems to be like climate's dying. I'm standing in the middle of the road. And I get that for a lot of people, I, d- I don't think it would be right to say that they don't care. I don't think it is virtue signaling. I think it is just mis- mis- being misled into the action they take. And there are much better organizations to get involved with, and in my opinion. Again, I'm not I'm not undermining. I have to be a little careful because like, I'm not undermining civil disobedience. I'm not undermining direct action because I think that it's needed, actually, like a lot in this case but i think you can see the change in rhetoric with certain organizations extinction rebellion is a really good one because extinction rebellion started as just stop oil started they were essentially just shouting about the issue disrupting everyone everyone was really pissed off at them um they got relative support but like from a quite a niche group of society but pretty much everyone else was just like i'd rather like actually work on solutions than just shout about problems um yeah. But, but they've changed, they've changed their rhetoric and now they've actually like turned their back on disrupting day-to-day life. They organize protests, which are like pre-planned and pre-organized, like everyone knows they're happening. They take petitions and they t- put pressure on government officials. Like So they've, they've almost taken a leaf out of Greenpeace's book now where they're going, okay, actually the best way to get a solution is to like present solutions and like try and get those put through government and put through business whereas just stop oil i think sort of saw extinction rebellion backing off from that direct action and were like hey look like no one's doing this like why is no one doing this well no one's doing it because it's it, right. it it's always an opportunity
0: to, to fill that gap kind of thing yeah so
1: so i think that again i'll just come back to the fact that I, I think that they have they have good intentions the problem is is that they're just d- just doing it in a way which like really doesn't really help that much like the only the only silver lining through any of that is that we're talking about it because of them, but I don't know if that's enough really, because generally what we're talking about is like having to defend the climate movement rather than actually
0: talking productively right. about solutions. It's, it's putting it on the back foot. So like, yeah, yeah. I, I would say that that isn't yeah. enough that. I agree. because it's, it's, I agree. it's changing, it's changing the conversation entirely yeah. to what is an appropriate way of dealing with these issues as opposed to the issue yeah. itself. Like, no, I know how we're not really yeah. talking of, of the oil, problem itself yeah. When, yeah, whenever yeah, yeah, whenever yeah, yeah, yeah. the conversation comes up it's mm. not like well actually yeah i don't really agree with what they do but on the topic of, of that it's yeah, always yeah, just yeah, you know yeah this 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 is how it goes right i do think, but you know what you mentioned about a...
1: Sorry, i do think there's a piece there though that like the media has a responsibility to like take context and use context before reporting and actually they don't do that they take like the immediate reaction report reporting because it's like more sensationalist and then that gets them more viewers and then blah 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 blah. it causes more like disruption and like like people complain and like woo, we've got good viewer numbers and like actually that's a problem because the independent media was set up so that when these things happen the question is why are you doing this not you're a bad person for doing this so that whole conversation yeah, but,
0: but, but, but i but was advocate there i mean like that is basically the same sort of comparison that i'd made earlier of like you know trying to tell off one kid and the kid saying well it's but because it's like we know the media has its problems but that isn't the point like they yeah. knew just Boyle knew the media had its problems they knew full well yeah, how yeah, they yeah. were yeah. to be portrayed in the yeah. media if they didn't then they yeah. were <laughs> stupid and yeah. they and if they didn't then they do know now that every time they do something how they're going to be portrayed in the media and the fact is i'll be honest i don't think the media is doing necessarily a particularly bad job when it comes to reporting on that because they are reporting the actual impact it's having on people which is generally negative so i mean that is reporting the news that is saying the challenges are gluing themselves to the road and preventing traffic the challenge
1: is that yes like if they left it there then sure like they could talk about the action that just stop oil has taken and rightfully question it and and talk about that as a media story in its own right without talking about all of the stuff and preamble around it. The challenge is that they don't stop there. Then they go, well, you know, like, then they go into the rhetoric of like, well, the climate movement, like, why are you even questioning it? Like, you're wearing clothes, aren't you? Like, how can you stand there and tell us not to like, And that's just not helpful, because and that's, and that's bad journalism, because you shouldn't be interviewing someone who's there doing something which you may or may not agree with but you should be talking about what they did not suddenly like okay so you are going to ask them why they're doing it but instead of asking them why they do it because of the actual issue you're going to ask them why they did it because they're not perfect well that's bad that's that's shoddy journalism like just on a fundamental yeah yeah I mean, like, like I said, I think there are a lot of
0: faults. Them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of faults with journalism, you know, modern yeah. media and, and journalism, for sure. Yeah. But again, to play devil's advocate a little bit on that. You also, for your own admission, talking about just up oil, don't really seem to have a very clear message anymore. So yeah, I think yeah, yeah. a lot of that, a lot of what we were seeing about, you know, when when reporters are doing this sort of, you know, probing and, and saying and pointing out the hypocr- hypocrisy of an, an individual, yeah. which is fair. Yeah. Like we said in the early, you know, beginning part of this conversation, yeah. question everything. Nothing wrong with that. Media are entitled to do that, too. But the reason why I think they did that is because they would stop a lot of these protesters and say, right, tell us, like, tell, tell us what it is that you're your goals are, what is it that you want, um, so we can stop this madness? And the answers weren't satisfactory. So, I mean, like, when you put a reporter or, you know, a media organization or the public in that position, well, then it's going to be it's going to be open season on that individual or group of people to be like, well, then you're hypocrites. You're doing this, you're sitting in the middle of the road, you're being disruptive, and you don't have a particularly good reason or, or set of solutions as to why, well, then I'm sorry, but you're fair game. And I and I kind of understand that. I, I'm not saying I support it, but I understand it. You know, you yeah. you are kind of opening yourself up, either as an individual or as an organization, for that sort of scrutiny. Um, yeah. <laughs> rightly or wrongly, I don't know. But that's, that's the media's job. But, you know, as well as reporting the news, they're also a uh, a content uh, organization. Right. And they need to be consumed. And <laughs> we know that comes with yeah. a whole lot of faults in itself, right? <laughs> a friendly reminder to share this episode with your network like comment and subscribe it really helps the show and only takes a couple of minutes
1: yeah yeah no, I, I, yeah I, I agree with the sentiment of being questioned I, I don't think i will i don't think we'll find agreement though on like some some of the tactics used in that but that's fine like you know everyone has
0: yeah well no, and look i don't agree with them necessarily either but i understand um, why it happened. yeah do and, and i do, and like I
1: do
0: yeah and i also just like
1: as a sort of like follow-on like as much as i might not agree again i just come back to the fact that like i think these people have really good intentions they are basing everything off of climate science like they're not just like pulling shit out of thin air and disrupting people's lives yeah yeah yeah, because there is a a very very serious issue as we were talking about earlier um their tactics are wrong but in my opinion but that yeah I, i i can't vilify them for like for that because it's frustrating it's damaging but the question i always come back to is like it is frustrating to to be disrupted it, it is challenging it's probably not the right tactic to have productive conversation and they're certainly not producing lots of solutions to that to that conversation but also on the flip side of all of that if we did nothing and and i know you're not saying that at all but a lot of the conversation is like you guys should just like bugger off and like not be here and like if they did absolutely nothing regardless of whether we agree with the tactics. And guarantee that like a city on fire or or you know a route where people can't drink water for weeks on end um is is going to be much more disruptive to their to their lives and a bunch of people who have really good intentions but just like are slightly misled in how they do it so i think like i agree question what they're doing make them think about it but vilifying them isn't the right thing to do like from the media's perspective or anyone's perspective because they're doing it for a good reason they're just doing it wrongly, um and, and that yeah and, and
0: i suppose i would say thing. to that that we're not, no one's vilifying them other than themselves i think personally but 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 yeah, 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 better,
1: yeah. that's to. what I'm. but I mean. um <laughs> but
0: no, it's, it's super interesting but do you think that then um like uh you know obviously you work with Greenpeace and you you, you you're you you advise uh the government on on certain issues and so on like you know it seems to me like you're of a similar opinion to me in the sense that I think diplomacy has a lot to do with how we can move the needle somewhat yes we focus about, about uh, enterprise I think being the main driving force yeah, yeah. ultimately solving the biggest vision but diplomacy is important too these conversations need to happen happen whether you're your advice gets ignored or not is kind of a whole different thing, which in itself, I imagine, is extraordinarily frustrating. But but that's (laughs) important. Do you think that these organizations like um, like Greenpeace, like um, Extinction Rebellion, like Just Up Oil and and the many others um, should be sitting down more and coordinating a little bit more and and actually having some 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 conversations themselves? Because ultimately, like I said, the actions of these organizations separately affect one another right they affect the public perception and and therefore government perception of the issues at hand should there is there that coordination should there be that coordination do you think super interesting yeah i think it's 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 challenging isn't it because for example
1: greenpeace has been running for 50 years and has not been using those tactics generally like they might have made mistakes in the past and then admitted them but generally it's been like target businesses target governments um speak to governments around the board table and speak to businesses around the board table um but I think like the challenge for them is that they can't adamantly say we don't support it because then they're sort of saying we don't support their reasons for doing it and I know that's not what they're saying but that's how people would read it and they've always got to think about the PR PR angle right so they can't openly say we don't agree with the actions they're taking similarly though they're obviously damaged by that. As I say, we you know Greenpeace got chucked into the same bag as these organizations for years. And it's like, well, not really. We do something a bit different, but I guess like we're part of the same movement. Um, and so the challenge, if you don't then say something out, then you get sort of tied in with them. But the other problem is, is that if you then go and speak to those organizations, then you are definitely associated with them <laughs> um, because then you are absolutely working with them. And actually Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion have done stuff together but only in stuff which isn't targeting individuals and now that Extinction Rebellion has changed its tone sort of entirely I expect you'll see more collaboration between the two organizations just like going forward as with like Friends of the Earth as well like they're a great example as well Amnesty International like these organizations are all doing sort of the same work but like now they'll probably collaborate more because they're all using the same tactics Just Stop Oil is slightly like more fringe because then they're like Well, Extinction Rebellion's moved away from those tactics. Greenpeace has never used those tactics. Definitely not Friends of the Earth and Amnesty. So it's like, do we talk with them and try and get them to join the sort of like positive movement that we've been having? Or do we just like disassociate and go, we're not going to say anything, let them do their thing, even if that reflects a little bit negatively on us and we get associated slightly, it's better than us collaborating with them. Um, I don't know if that's the conversation or the rhetoric that's happening. I can't speak on behalf of these organizations. I don't work in them anymore. I've worked with them still, but I'm not an employee. Um, but I think that it's probably a little <laughs> probably inside their comms department, like pretty heated conversation about what stance they should take. And I know that in the past as well, we've like, you know, we've been briefed on what we should say about Extinction Rebellion actions that had been taking place that weekend. And it's like, that wasn't Greenpeace. Greenpeace isn't associated with any other organization. We are completely independent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, because purely from the fact that if we do associate with anyone, if they do anything wrong, we get the backlash. So, so I think that's probably where they're sitting is just like, they'll collaborate so long as this the tactics used are like within remit of like what they deem acceptable. Um but I think they won't they won't sort of call out the others because the challenge is is that then they disenfranchise some of the climate movement as well, because there are lots of people who support just stop oil. So like Greenpeace needs those people. Greenpeace needs those people to support Greenpeace as well and support Friends of the Earth and support Amnesty International and all of these other organizations. So so they are they're a little bit between a rock and a hard place, I think. Um I would, would like more coverage on the less exciting stuff that these organizations do but you know that's that's it
0: yeah and case. me too because if you know th- 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 like you said there's a lot of stuff happening in boardrooms yeah and we're not privy to that and no. um or if we yeah. are you you know i'm sure the information is there be within those channels in order to to receive that it's Absolutely. not mainstream Absolutely which you know is is kind of going back always to the main point of all of this which is you know the reason why canopy exists and the reason why you know all of these businesses that i believe will, will succeed will succeed is because you're making things convenient to people people yeah. aren't actively yeah. going out and seeking this information you need to give it to them and this is a broader problem because of you know greenpeace is doing some amazing work and has done for a number of years um like you said they made mistakes but who hasn't right, yeah, of course, right. <laughs> um, um and <laughs> yeah exactly and um and and yeah I, I agree i think we we should we should be hearing more about that um yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah, definitely the the other course. than maybe you know more money more money for the for the pr department uh at greenpeace right <laughs> this is the challenge
1: as well right like so greenpeace isn't a charity so they get no like business or governmental sort of support through charitable donations or gift aid or anything like that um they are 100 percent independently funded by individuals who give money um so therefore they have no sort of association with anyone. Um, and it means that they can sort of call out anyone as well. Whereas other organizations like WWF, for example, or a charity, and they take money from big organizations and then they're sort of like tied a little bit of what they can and can't do because then they lose their money, they lose their funding. So what you see is Greenpeace being this great organization with like brilliant campaigns, but just like really, really, really limited funding. <laughs> um, and it does make it hard because then you've got great teams working really hard, paid okay, but like, definitely like not enough for the work that they're doing. You know, when you look Mm -hmm. at the one thing that always used to come up with when I spoke with people when I used to fundraise for Greenpeace was like, oh, yeah, but the execs of these organizations are paid like ridiculous amounts of money. Where's my money going to go? Greenpeace was always really open. Like, yeah, our exec is paid like £70,000. He lives in the center of London because he's working consistently on diplomatic campaigns. (laughs) Um, And it's definitely not enough for the work that he does. Um, And that's the highest. £70,000
0: is not a lot lot of money. That's the highest
1: salary in the in the entire of Greenpeace, right? Like, and I think that compare that to some other charities where their where their organization, well, Greenpeace isn't a charity, but compare it to charities where they've got business money, government money, and then they're spending money on their salaries of like 400, 500, 600,000 pounds, sometimes over a million, depending on who they are. And it's like, that's not justified in my opinion. And that's the people you should be challenging. But also I just come back to the point that generally, like with all of these movements, I think. What we should focus more on is like, what are they talking about? And like, why are we, why are they there? Why do they exist? They wouldn't exist if they, if they didn't have something to talk about. Uh, And So like, really, we should just like remove all the fluff ultimately. And we should just like go right back to, to the root cause, which is like, what's the problem? What are their supposed solutions? And what are the barriers for people adopting these solutions? And then can business fill the gap and help basically cross that barrier? Um, and I think that that would be a good collaboration to start seeing more of. It's just like seeing those. This is why of exists, right? Like seeing those barriers for our entire careers of speaking to people both within and without these organizations and then going, okay, there are these things which those organizations are never going to be able to facilitate because they're NGOs or charities, they're not businesses. So we can do that as a business. We can facilitate that and, and we can drive that in the current economy that we have. So uh, that's really, really all about it for us
0: yeah yeah and look we've got the opportunity right now to a degree we've got an audience we've got a platform right now what what are some some um some things that you are aware of greenpeace have either done in your time working with them or are working on actively now or maybe some other organizations that you want to highlight now um to yeah to the the listeners to the watchers um because you know like we just said that's part of the problem is there isn't enough being heard about that so what are the, these things happening in the boardrooms what are the the the, the things that they're pushing and, and and the solutions that they've managed to it what have they achieved? what are they achieving yeah i mean look you know we could go through the entire
1: history of um of greenpeace oh yeah not let's not go Internet. through the entire list but you know maybe
0: maybe some things notable that you think people should hear about
1: yeah that, so i think that,
0: you know isn't being isn't being talked about because i think that would be really interesting for people
1: i think some of the interesting stuff is like around you know we're all aware that microplastics, uh, microbeads, like mic- plastic microbeads, are being banned in the UK. Um, this came after Greenpeace action. Um, we've seen Shell and other big oil companies drop plans for like Arctic drilling for oil and gas. That's because of Greenpeace campaigns and Friends of the Earth as well. Like getting involved in these great, you know, great great campaigns, which they both speak to these companies but also put pressure on these companies like externally. Um, one of the most recent ones was sort of like a really historic global ocean treaty to protect uh protect 30 of the oceans by 2030. um these sort of things i've worked on those campaigns and generally it's like quite a long slog and you know to have tens and tens of countries signing up Globally, to support these treaties is is a huge win. Um, I think one of the examples I always use, which I really enjoy talking about, is that going actually back to the palm oil question that I was mentioning earlier, Greenpeace found out through investigative research that Santander was investing uh, its uh, well, it's the people who bank with them their money into uh, unsustainable palm oil um, into a company which purely did this slash and burn technique in, in indonesia and beyond and um we went to there and we said look we've exposed this here's a strategy in which you can shift that to palm oil which is certified to not be on new land but only on the previous plantation so you're not damaging more biodiversity you're just sort of you're not losing investment money because you're still investing in, into this now new industry but it's better than it was and here's a transitionary plan. And they said, no, we're not interested. We're not going to talk to you. So Greenpeace launched a campaign letting basically, and you may have seen it, the orangutan campaign, one of their ads was banned. Like they went around on streets in orangutan costumes and like did lots of stuff outside Samsung, their HQ. In 72 hours of running the campaign, hundreds of thousands of people had started to sort of remove their bank accounts from Santander and moving over to other banks. So Santander got back in touch with Greenpeace and said, we'd like to talk. And then we managed to make them change their entire Palm Oil investment strategy into a sustainable Palm Oil strategy investment uh, investment strategy. Uh, and I think that that's just like, that's a very short time frame. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, that's very rare that that happens so quickly. Mm, but it's yeah. the sort of power that individuals can have through organizations like Greenpeace, like friends of the earth like amnesty international um and obviously if it's not to do with the environment other organizations as well like save the children or you know um, human rights watch or whatever it is like you can you can support these organizations and they're doing the heavy lifting they're doing the work you don't need to do anything you just need to be a member you need to have anywhere between three and then as much as the limit is for you pounds a month to support them and it's like you can basically then sit back, not sit back, you still need to be taking individual action, but you can know that those wins that are happening are happening because you've put your name behind them. Um, so I think that those are some of the wins and some of the things that we can start to witness more and, and be a part of as, as a society. Um, but, but, but also I think that as individuals like use your voice like use your wallet um you know you don't have to change your life radically you can just support businesses which are doing better you can support organizations which are pushing for change without even you needing to do anything else in your life um so so i think that there's some real power just generally in in our lifestyles that we have which we generally Mm. don't talk about um and and we could use that all use that for, for positive change
0: and money and time talks but i i really love that that example you gave there with the, that, that uh, Santander Palmola example, yeah. because what stands out to me the most about that is that Greenpeace weren't going to Santander and just saying, you are banned because yeah. of what you're doing, yeah. and you should change it, but actually coming with a solution, a plan, a, you know, everything. Like, you just say, yeah. we've taken the time to do this, and there was no reason they had to do that. They didn't have to. Yeah. They could very easily have just said, you should change this. But, yeah. of course, like, you, you know, we're talking about, very large organizations a lot of uh, of stakeholders you know as much as there may be a couple of people that agree with that on their board that isn't enough and there needs to be you know there needs to be a a financial reason you know at the end of the day uh, to make it happen one that that does save them time does save them money and all that so that's a great example to me because of it is as much as it would be easy to to like um uh, i don't know just go up to anyone and and just point the finger you know and and say you should do better like you know you were saying about um, we we're saying about just oil, you know, pointing at people in yeah. cars and saying, "What are you doing?" It's like, okay, well, give me an alternative. Like, <laughs> um and yeah, I think literally. that's where it has the, the biggest impact, you know. Um, so that, yeah. that's a really great it, example. Yeah. Solutions always like if you can't talk about a solution
1: at the end with a lot of complaining about a problem, then like,
0: you well, you're just moaning. Support-
1: just go and support an organisation like and look, not everybody needs to be a founder, not everybody needs to like go and start an initiative. Like there are right, lots of right. things you can go and support. So if you can go and support them, go and do your action and shout about the problems, but then be like, oh, and also we support this organisation or we support this thing that's happening. And then that gives actionable changes that people can make without having to feel like we're consistently just being told they're bad.
0: Right, and and have a bit of uh, put a bit of time into understanding what the possible solutions are, so that when you are confronted with it, um, as someone who's maybe talking about it, you can reel rattle them off, yeah. and say, yeah, you know, exactly. I actually have looked at this. I've taken the time. There yeah. are other ways of doing this thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Like you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about uh, about this post that I've got coming up, uh, talking about a recent guest. One of yeah. the things I mentioned in that is about how I think, because um, because it all started as well. It's tied into to with an event I went to not too long ago about uh, tech for good. Um, that you may have seen me post about recently, which was a, a, a largely a good event. It was a keynote speaker there from uh, Shifted, um, speaking yeah. about about tech for good globally and and the, the the sort of issues with VC money and they're not backing the right things. No, 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 And it was largely a good thing, but there was one thing missing. They, you know, at the end, they did a panel, and someone asked, "What can people do?" And at no point did anyone on the panel say something which I think is really obvious, which is just support these founders, support these startups. When there are betas, sign up. When you're asked to, to be an early adopter of something, do it. And that yeah. that was really surprising that no one was talking about that in a yeah. forum full of founders. Yeah. Um, like to me, that seems like the obvious thing. When there yeah. are crowd funds, you know, uh, launched on Kickstarter, contribute, you know, pledge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, become an angel investor. There are people out there with money, um, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. wants to do some good with it. Become an angel investor, and like you said, you know, create a thesis that, that is targeted <laughs> towards these sort of businesses. There's yeah. a lot people can do in this space which i think really moves the needle um, in being able to get founders like yourself funded and moving forward or at the very very least if you don't have the money give them your time beta test a product yeah you know sometimes it's just 10 minutes of your day to to do something use it and give feedback fill out a survey like these are really really impactful things in my opinion and being able to make a significant change if you don't want to go out on the street and do your hands to the floor like, do you know what I mean? Which most people don't want to do, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely agree, yeah. I think like bringing support in whatever way is reasonable for you as an individual to organizations that need it that are changing, like doing good, um, is, is absolutely fundamentally needed just in society and more Yeah, be around that, for
0: sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's that's my that's my sort of call to action that I've been harping on for a little while about. um I mean, not just not just because I'm slightly biased, because as a founder, I want people to, <laughs> to to be early adopters of my product, as you and as do all of course, the founders. Of but like, I honestly believe that for for the for these you know sustainable startups and you know those those startups really wanting to affect change, some of them are you know pretty ambitious too. Like you no, need sure. as much support as possible. You know. 100%. So um, so yeah. So that's that's the uh, that's the um, the the box that i will stand on as it were but um yeah (laughs) no it's super interesting so um so talk me through then like just to go back to canopy more a little bit because i did warn you we're going to talk about all kinds of crazy (laughs) but let's take it back to canopy right now so what is um what is uh what's the next step what's going to happen next so you've got a lot that's just happened like you touched on what's what's the future looking like the rest of this year into q1 of next year you must have a lot planned right
1: yeah, definitely. I think like for us, we love moving fast and grow fast. And we're not the type of company which is just interested in sort of like sitting back and riding the wave. We want to like create the wave. Um, so we're now that we've public launched the platform and we've sort of seen a huge uptick in the number of people signing up and using it and buying stuff ultimately is now is really a big push on that growth and making sure that those metrics make sense from a commercial perspective. So all about retention and sort of like all about the stickiness of the platform. Uh, and also of course, like how much we're spending to acquire those people. But essentially for us, we now to like this week turn on our digital, but within that, actually we have like three different pillars of strategy to grow as a company, which is across digital PR and career marketing and then big brand partnerships. So you'll see all of these things being implemented over the next sort of few months. and, And. for the lifetime of the company of course um some great organizations that we're looking to do work with over the next few months so you know city to Sea, a great charity doing plastic um plastic action stuffers against sewage water aid um some really great organizations that we can't wait to do campaigns with um and the reason for tying our work in with their work is that it gives the people who support those charities actionable things they can then go and do in their lives uh, to make an impact on that campaign, like buying less you know, plastic or buying less, where it is, like Canopy can sort of like facilitate that. Um, and then on the flip side, our users don't feel like they're just supporting a business, but they're actually supporting maybe a charity doing good as well through their contribution um, and, and financial support to the company. Um, really, all of this, of course, is like the super busiest time for like a consumer company um christmas is coming up like obviously black friday is coming up we've got some really fun campaigns around sort of greenwashing and like why you need to be careful of green claims and like how canopy can help with that and all of this great like positive stuff around that so look out for those christmas gonna be fun but then really the big goal for us is that we're going out to raise a 1.5 million seed round in q1 um and then that will really allow us to sort of Diversify our revenue streams, expand our sort of customer acquisition in the UK, and then start eyeing up our next geography as well as a company to, to launch the platform in, um, which is likely to be sort of the Nordics um, or somewhere in Western Europe. But we're still still doing all of that research. But, but yeah, so it's a very, very busy, very exciting time. We've got Tech Stars. So we're on Tech at the minute, which is really great. It's a super brilliant program. They're a great investor to have on the cap table. Um, but obviously, with that program coming at to the end um at the beginning of December really for us at that point it's like everything is like focused on like using that network we've created in that ecosystem to then really facilitate the growth of you know better buying in a mainstream market
0: yeah so a lot of a lot of spinning plates which is to be expected but very yeah. exciting time um yeah, so yeah. we um yeah so w- w- you know just talk to me about the the sort of fundamentals of the platform so i'm curious but we're in terms of how it works in relation to suppliers so is this yeah. something that suppliers can some, can just go to the platform and sort of uh, uh register and 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 submit essentially their 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 application to be featured on on the on the platform or are you or, or is it a bit of a bit of that and then of course you reaching out to maybe suppliers that you've researched you know products that you've researched that are that are innovative in this space and, and you asking them to join is it kind of a mixture of these two things
1: yeah so obviously naturally with any business there's outbound like we have we need to we yeah. resupply consistently and we have like a huge huge research list of brands that we think would be appropriate to get through our verification process interestingly not all of them do which is like super like eye-opening just to see what sort of is on the market and what's being said on the market yeah, interesting. because obviously you've got to take you can't say everything at face value so that's why kind of exists to verify that for people um
0: so then, that goes to what you were saying about you know being aware of, of greenwashing yeah. As, as, yeah. as a consumer and so on it kind of ties into that so you must have a fair amount of data on that to pull from
1: yeah. well exactly it's more for us about like if they're making green claims that they've got the evidence to back them up, which makes us the only marketplace which is compliant with that regulation I mentioned earlier, the Green Claims Code and um, you know, coming out of um, the, the UK government, actually, um, on claims that companies can make. And, and you know, that makes us not only future-proof, but also gives a huge amount of trust to consumers and vendors, because they won't be selling against something which is basically lying about their green claims, because it would have had to have been verified by Canopy. Um, so the steps for a brand are essentially whether they come from an outbound or an inbound they have to go through the, vet- the vetting of that of their claims and that's quite a streamlined process to be honest like they have to go through their bra- their business their product and the materials of their product and just submit that into our platform and then we can obviously at the same time uploading evidence next to each claim they make and then that just gets verified on our back-end system within the parameters that we've set of what we accept as evidence um if for the ones that are approved like then we bring those products through the platform, onto the platform in a classic marketplace model um but within that there's loads of like tech enabled um education and, and impact data within the platform itself so that you as a consumer can not only find like a shop but also if you have no idea what to swap out you can actually go and learn like a whole amount in our shop by space feature, which just is edu- it's a huge educational platform in itself um, but the idea that that is there is it means that if you're not really sure like canopy's got you like we've got your back like here's the here's the information you can find um and then that like obviously all feeds through to making that purchase and and beginning your your journey as a sustainable shopper um i think fundamentally for us like the big thing is looking at the things we can tie in from an even more convenient level so for those refills those products that you're buying on a regular basis like building in subscriptions and bundles and the ability to gift people and that will allow us to they're quite standard marketplace and e-commerce things but it allows us to make sustainable shopping as convenient as as sort of not um so really important for us on a product level is the next sort of few months learning what what the users are wanting and what they're buying and then implementing those changes effectively
0: yeah and and from a sort of logistics point of view uh, how does it work in, in terms of the suppliers and you are you fulfilling the orders are you bringing in these products into a a, a centralized warehouse or are you just sending off these delivery uh, notes to the suppliers and they're fulfilling them, you know, and then how does that affect, you know, maybe the consumer experience in terms of yeah. when they can. So expect the delivery times and things like that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's probably the one sort of barrier that we have as a startup is that we can't afford to have like entire distribution centers and warehouses and the distribution yeah. networks. Um, one of the first, one of the investors in pre-seed round who used to basically manage uh mars the confectionery company their like european logistics network he was like when i went to him and told him the idea in day one and the idea was to have that network as well he was like don't like you're going to need to raise like literally millions like from day one because otherwise you're just going to burn money and not ever hit profitability so it's the one the one thing where we had to make a conscious choice to sacrifice convenience actually which is very rare for us but thing means that you can still make all of the orders in one basket. So the actual shopping experience is the same as going on Amazon. The difference is, is that those products would come individually at this point. And we have made some caveats around that to reduce the impact from an impact perspective, whereby they can't be distributed to you from outside the UK. So they have to be within the UK distribution network already. Then we're not adding new things to that. We're just like inputting putting things into a network that's already there. Um, but also from a level of, the fact that there are time limits on the days that those things can be sent out so you should receive them quickly um but of course the vision for us is that we'll get to a point where we've got such a stable growth for, well hopefully large growth but like month on month that we can justify raising money to implement a logistics um so that then we can hold that stock and get them to you um as quickly as you as you'd want but in a in an informed and sustainable way as well um generally though like that actually Really interesting. We did a whole bunch of like customer research, like right at the beginning of the journey, before we even started building to find out what the priorities were for people. And when we, one of those things that they could choose was like delivery time. And a lot of people put that relatively high, but not super high. And then since we launched and getting feedback from people, everyone's just been like, I don't really mind so long as I can get all the products in one place. And so long as those products actually turn up. I don't really mind if like they all come the same day at the same time. like as long as I get them in a reasonable amount of time, I'm happy. And that was actually super interesting because I think we've been led to believe generally as a sector that people just want everything now, like all the time. Like that actually people are willing to sort of just be like, well, I've made my order. Like and then so long as they come, like I've got my product, so it's all good. Yeah. Um, and then obviously if we can build in more convenience, great, sure. But like, actually it was interesting to see the, the, the willingness of that trade off from people. Um, and I, and it, ma- it makes us feel a little bit better as well because we were quite nervous. Yeah, <laughs> that that'd
0: be a problem. yeah I can imagine, um, but yeah, it, it's yeah. more about, it's more about the user experience on the platform ultimately rather than the thing, but it's interesting because I, I, um, I spoke with someone recently on this podcast who, again, who, um, who's, uh, who's a, a startup founder, um, uh again it would have been released now before this one um uh, called Laura Solomon uh, laura solomon solomon sorry and she's okay. um, the um, founder hoopsie? of a sorry is that from hoopsie yes from hoopsie yeah 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 are you yeah, have yeah. you
1: spoke with her before they're one of our ven- she's one of our vendors <laughs> yeah.
0: oh really fantastic yeah so um that's great because you know i I was going to ask about you know presumably a lot of the the vendors that you're working with are startups themselves right um and you know she was talking about how she's finding it quite difficult to to sort of get get into people's faces to get traction on the products and which is which is a problem for a lot of people especially solo founders like herself um who face you know the 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 problems you know from an economic point of view and and don't have the funds to push things forward like do you see yourselves as being um in a, in a quite unique position as canopy to be able to 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 push push some of these products and to help some of these founders actually you know gain a bit of traction on their products and, and essentially grow their businesses you know in, in with them
1: yeah absolutely so it's one of the things that we're looking to bring in um there's like two things one is we do lot of marketing already for our business for the brands like obviously we have to so they're going to see their own products involved in marketing like for them but within canopy so even though there's a slight payoff there because obviously we take a commission on sale it's still growth for them and it's still brand awareness for them so it's it's positive um, yeah. the other thing is that the sort of secondary thing to that is that we have the ability and we're going to be implementing it um to do sort of help with debt financing for a partner where they can apply for that through the canopy platform based on canopy sales and their sales and other channels and and then get funding to push their own brand more as well um, and so looking at ways in which we can implement that with a, with a partner as well. Um, but you know, that, that will come, it's not sort of like super high product product priority right now, but we'll be in sort of the new year, probably after that seed round, particularly. Um, and, and then the third thing is that after our seed round, we'll be actually exploring, doing sort of like out of home campaigns more rather than just doing sort of like your, your digital, your guerrilla marketing PR and your, uh, and your partnerships we will be looking to sort of do some yeah, more traditional marketing. Um, and that actually, we have the opportunity to bring brands on that with us. So we end up covering most of the costs, but then they can they can basically um, opt into being part of that campaign and use their products within those campaigns. And then we will make sure that their products are within those ads um, so that then they can, we can grow them as well through our marketing even more, reach even more people. So yeah, a, a big thing for us is not just pushing like, one not just competing with them on a product level but also two just pushing the marketplace like the whole thing around canopy is that it's a community of of people pushing for the right thing and therefore we want to all support each other and if they grow we grow and if we grow they grow so it's all needs to be with that in mentality um and all of the vendors that work with have that with us the other thing just like from a side note which is less to do with like marketing and product sales per se and more to do with just like business management is that we have built a big sort of like perks and discounts deal flow essentially like exclusive to canopy as partners whereby in what we've said is like usually the way that partnerships work is you get like a a payback like a revenue share like so if that company then signs up through your partnership affiliate link then you get a payout and we just say well forget payout make it a discount for the vendors um and it means that we have these really great exclusive deals that vendors can access through canopy if you're a canopy vendor it means that they then can improve their business they can you know streamline their their operations whatever it is and that can be a mix anything from legal to marketing to uh um to impact to you know certifications like it's all you know the idea is to bottle that more and more out as a resource for exclusively for canopy vendors um so yeah lots of stuff that we work to improve their business and, and help them grow as well fundamentally uh, really really important for us
0: that's great to hear because like i said i think you it would be foolish not to take advantage of the, the position that you're in working with these vendors right and, and be able to support them just like we talked about earlier about how you know we all have the individual um opportunity to support these businesses through the action we take you have that you have that prime opportunity there so it's great to see that you've built that into the business model already. Um yeah. so you know um look I know that you've got to go um soon so um so why don't we would it be useful for because I know w- when do you have to go? Is it is it quite imminent? well i, I uh, technically i have a
1: uh, i have another meeting in 10 minutes <laughs> which i need to get to uh but, uh, but we'll i've emailed okay, to good. say that i'm in a very interesting conversation that i don't want to leave <laughs> um, but he, yeah i shouldn't i shouldn't leave him hanging too long <laughs>
0: No, that's fine. We can wrap things up. It's fine. You've been very ge- generous with your time already. And I wouldn't want to keep you from uh, from a meeting like that. So it's not a problem. Um so look, let's let's sort of get to that point then. So this is the other only other bit of structure I have in this whole bloody mess of a show, which is uh, which hopefully you've enjoyed. Um which really is good. um to to ask a bit about about uh, I, I ask everyone this sort of more towards the end. And it is kind of cliche, but I think it's really useful. Which is, you know, the vast majority of the people listening to this are entrepreneurs or founders themselves, right? Yeah. Um, or maybe just interested in, in a particular topic that my guest is going to be talking about. But that is, is mostly founders, and there are various stages of their journey. So, you know, you've talked a lot about, you know, how you've got to where you are and what the plans are for the future. But do you have any um, sort of not so well-known pieces of advice or tips for for individuals in the situation of, you know, just starting a business, or you know, like someone like Laura I talked about, who's, you know, really struggling to get traction um on on the products and so on and um, anything really any little bit a bit of gold uh, that you can share um especially if it's stuff that is um you know maybe things that you feel aren't talked about as much as they should be potentially
1: yeah it's it's, it's a tough one because you know for people like lara for example i know she's putting a hell of a lot of effort into growing and it's it's you know, it can be frustrating as a founder and I, I know how she feels when you're doing all that effort and you're doing everything you should be doing and you're struggling to get that, that traction. But but again, like I think that that's just a matter of resilience, like you just got to keep pushing and then it's just one yes that will change that for for sort of like the future. Yeah, so, absolutely. yeah, so so one of I mean, guess that first piece of advice is just like try not to and i think everyone says this but and and i know how hard it is to actually take on but like try not to take every no or every barrier as like a personal issue and just like you know accept it move on and and keep pushing you know you're doing something amazing um and you you, you'll get there eventually you just need to you know have that resilience and grit which is always a bit challenging at certain times like I, i get that um i think the other thing is like there's always a lot of like sus around like talking to people about your idea depending on how early whoever is listening is where they are in that journey but like no matter what you're doing honestly the most valuable thing that we've ever done as startup founders is talk about what we're doing to people even people who we think could go and do it themselves, because we get really interesting insights, feedback. Most of the time, people are more willing to help you than to take your idea. And to be honest, if you're a startup founder who cares enough about what you're building, like they took the idea and succeeded, it'd be frustrating, but you'd also be really happy because really what your focus should be, should be like solving the problem. And if someone else solves the problem, then great, right? Like that that's a good thing. Um, so I think, yeah, the, you know, fundamentally it's a bit of a mental shift like going from like oh no no my, my solution is the only solution but you basically just want to speak to as many people as possible about what you're doing in a completely open and honest conversation and get that feedback and, and be willing to understand the the negatives fundamentally like everyone can tell you how good you are but actually it's the people who will challenge you who are the most valuable um so it's really really important uh, and then i think that's third- how
0: i built my career
1: <laughs> yeah just just criticize people then um and uh I, third... I always tell
0: people that my when they ask what i do for a living i say i i, I get ignored for a living
1: <laughs> <laughs> i think that's just like all of us for a long period of time uh and right. the, yeah pretty
0: much the third
1: thing I'd i'd probably say is like I think it depends. If you're a solo founder, like this is quite a, probably not super relevant to you Like, and an apologies, but what I would do is replace the idea of a co-founder with like a good mentor and advisor in this situation. But what I would say is if you have a co-founder or mentor advisor, then I would have a really open and honest conversation about how you feel. I know this sounds really wishy-washy, but it's something that we did internally recently um, and it makes a whole world of difference to the motivation of people working within the company is if they feel listened to and not just like consistently feeling the pressure to work. And as much as like everything needs to be fast paced, we've got a minimum of things to do. At the same time, the most valuable resource in your startup is you as a person. It doesn't matter what your product it is, it doesn't matter how much money you've got, how much equity you've got, blah, 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 blah. blah. The most valuable person that has found the company is the founder. <laughs> um, so you don't want to be in a situation where you become bitter or resentful to that or any of your co-founders feel that way. Um, so we've definitely been at points through various journeys, whether in this company or companies, where we felt like frustrated or like bitterness towards what we're doing and we don't want that. So the best thing I can ever give uh, from an advisory perspective on that end, is to very early on and consistently build in time to listen and talk about how you feel and like what's pressuring you and whether there's any way to navigate that, or mitigate that, whether it's something you just have to deal with and then people can support you through that. But yeah, being really open emotionally is is an extremely valuable resource um, as a founder and not enough people do it, particularly with their co-founders, which I find, um, well, we found extremely valuable to do.
0: That's some yeah, that's some really good advice, and 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 one that I I believe that I uh, I hopefully contribute to in some sort of positive way because I've noticed that you know with my founders that I work with as a commercial advisor uh, over the years I've, I've shifted the sort of way I describe what I do is just strictly commercial advisor. To commercial yeah. advisor and coach because actually yeah. you know some of the time you know I, I sort of joke about this but a lot of the time it ends up being you know i'm part therapist in, in a lot of the time that i work with individuals because it is actually so important from my perspective to get the emotional um the emotional uh what's the word like the used, uh, motivations or behind things motivation. or, or how yeah. someone's feeling at the time and you know because that is such an important part of it and you know it can be as simple as just noticing that someone's slightly off in a session and just being like right Let's put aside what it was we we're going to talk about. Let's address this. How are you? Like, what do you need? Like, what's going on? Because, you know, as is quite often said again and again, being a founder can be quite a lonely road. We know that it's almost somewhat cliche at this point, but it's very true. And, yeah. you know, it's yeah. not always appropriate for that founder to share how they're feeling with their co-workers. Yeah. Like, that can undermine yeah. sometimes, you know, yeah. the, the, how they're yeah. perceived yeah. And, and, their you know, their level of resilience and all that sort of stuff. So So yeah. having a third party um, ideally, bundled into one that's also going to give you some strategic advice too, um, and how to balance that strategy with your yeah. um, capacity emotionally to be able to deal with these things. I find, well, I like, hope, is a valuable resource to them, and I and I yeah, would please. encourage anyone out there who's an advisor to try and adopt more of that, or a mentor to adopt more of that mentality, because you know, not not just think, well, this isn't my job, like, but to yes. actually you know consider the human impact that that can have, because I think it's it's Wonderful. far more constructive. Yeah. 100%. so yeah great advice i appreciate it man that's really cool and no, 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 um, and again i really appreciate your your time um with us today um i'll let you go so you've got a couple of minutes to to prepare i'm sure you're probably dying to together lou and loo and go have a coffee or something before you'll meet next meeting so i'll allow you wow. to do that but um yeah i mean look is there anything is that, what, what we've got in, like a couple of minutes is there anything you wanted to to get off your chest you didn't? i didn't ask you about didn't have the opportunity to talk about when it comes to you canopy any of the subjects we've covered or maybe anything you wanted to ask me I've never asked that before.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh,
1: I think fundamentally, like all I'd say is that this is a super exciting time for the industry, but it's also a super challenging time for everyone, just economically. And I would just come back to that one point that you don't need to be a perfect consumer, you can buy better and canopy is here to build convenience into that better shopping journey um, so please do come and you know check out the platform even if you don't buy anything love, love to hear from you and get feedback from that um, it's the only way that startups can improve so um, would yeah basically just an encouragement of come and come and try us out and then see what you think and, and any feedback goes a long way so that, that's what i'd say and it's canopy.com so it should be uh, relatively easy to find <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I'll put the link to to that in the description as well as your profile on LinkedIn. Um and look, if there's any other links that you want to send me that you think I should include in there to any anything else at all, feel free. I will I will always always welcome that from my guests. Um but but yeah, that will be in there at the very, very least as well. Um so listen, man, all that's left to do is say again, thank you for your the generosity of your time, but also the generosity of your thoughts and opinions. Like, you know, I, I really appreciate it. You know, I asked some questions there to sort of challenge you a little bit, but 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 i think it's important um and this is why Very i do what i do because i think it's important for there to be actual discussions on things as opposed to shutting each other down and so hopefully yeah, this, really. this allowed you the opportunity to talk about things that are important um so yeah, no, look, thank I'm, you. all the success for me. really appreciate it it's yeah good. no thank you no i appreciate it and um yeah. have a good one uh, and, and a great rest of the week and we'll speak again soon you too dude. cheers greg bye yeah. bye thank you for listening and or watching Please like and subscribe and join in the conversation in the comments below.